Emergency medicine abstract with Sanjay and Mike. Hello, MRAP EMA Universe. Those of you expecting to hear me with Dr. Michael Menchin are either going to be elated or sad this month. I'm not quite sure because for the first time in three years, Mike's getting a break. And we have a very, very, very special <laughs> guest host this month. She's excited to be here. Woohoo! Why don't you introduce yourself? Hey guys, I'm not Mike, but I am Brit Guest. But she plays Mike on TV. Uh. So there is that. There is that. Welcome, Brit. It's a pleasure to have you. It's super exciting to be here. It's a little scary to be here because, I mean, how could you fill Mike's shoes? That's not humanly possible, but I'm super stoked. This is going to be fun. Well, you know what? Look at it this way, because when Mike and I were young bucks, and basically everybody who you know and look up to, Stuart and Jan and Mel and Billy, at some point we were all junior faculty on EMA. We all survived it. <laughs> well, I'd say 50% of the people survived it. There Ooh. were some people who you have never heard of because they never survived that one taping. Oh, no. So after this, you just get cut. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> no what pressure. This does, what this does is it propels everybody into like a super educator state. So you're right now, you're like right on the cusp. So again, no pressure, nothing to prove. It's going to be super mellow walk in the park. In my heart of hearts, I believe three hours from now, you're going to be like unrecognizable human being. <laughs> it's like it's going to be that level of confidence that comes out of this. But, you know, that's, mm. that's part of the beauty of EMA, right, is like bringing up junior educators. And honestly, I'm super thrilled. I, I have heard you lecture. I know you're going to crush this taping. The papers this month are super good. They're pretty interesting. Yeah, I think, I mean, I know that you picked mine special for me, which I don't know. I got a couple ketamine papers, so not really sure why they're picked just for me, but I'm really excited about them. Well, we heard some stuff through the, the grapevine when Mike <laughs> and I, because <laughs> Mike and I still did the selections this month. So, you know, we, we heard a few things. We tried to give you some ketamine. We looked for a few, you know, that, that was the best we could do. Try oh, to boy. play to the strengths. Oh, boy. So, <laughs> yeah, and, you know, and Britt, of course, has the luxury of coming down to the, uh, the beautiful well-appointed EMA studio. I mean, it's gorgeous. And now that I finally get to look around, I really have to bring up one thing. Yes, go ahead. Specifically in the studio that I am obsessed with. Okay. And it is a pink rainbow unicorn painting here in the corner, Sanjay. You've yeah. got to tell me about why so, you okay. have a pink unicorn so, rainbow. Those of you who have listened for a while know that the, the glorious EMA studio is actually my home office, which converts to a studio once a month. Mm -hmm. So the unicorn, yes, it's a huge pink unicorn, but my office doubles as many things, right? And one of them is our like sort of return area. So we, is Rhea's third birthday just a couple of weeks ago, actually. And for her birthday, her mm -hmm. present was that she got to decorate her room however she wanted. And it was like a serious internal debate she had going mm -hmm. through multiple options. And at the end of the day, she decided she wanted hearts yep. and unicorns. Obviously. So we bought She's a got lot. good taste. She's got good taste. You can't go wrong <laughs> with that. That's going to hopefully last six months. So you know, we went to like the home goods and the the coals and we bought a bunch of unicorn stuff yep. most of it made the cut mm -hmm. this particular huge pink unicorn it's really big. did not it's very big <laughs> it's bigger than her it is it is cuz i just met her and she's really cute yes and i got to see her room and her style is impeccable yeah. i mean the unicorns there's a follow your dream unicorn there's a blanket unicorn that she showed me but mel if you're listening and i know you are 
Can we please, please have the pink rainbow unicorn in the studio? Please, I'm begging you. It sounds like I'm going to be able to, instead of returning this, sell this for a huge profit. Oh, I'm just taking it home with me. I didn't even know there was like (laughs) a black market for unicorn paintings. But apparently this one, I got the pick of the litter. So Mel, if you want it, it's all yours. It's my gift to you. My gift to you, Britt. Thank you. For driving all the way down here. Yeah, I'm taking it. Mel, it's going in the studio. All right. So (laughs) tell me a little bit about, uh, Britt, what, what are your favorite papers you got on tap? I can tell you, we had planned for Mike to take a vacation this month, and I will be off next month. So Mike was sad when the two of us picked the papers because these papers are super good. You know, we start with about 1,400 papers every month and whittle those things down to like 2022. And sometimes we struggle at the end. This time it was easy. Mm. So there's a lot of good ones. There Uh, is. Britt, what are you looking forward to most on your end? Well, I noticed that you did pick some ketamine papers for me, but they're super interesting. We've got ketamine for agitated patients. We've got ketamine for sickle cell disease all of which are like really interesting, really cutting edge. So I'm excited to talk about those. And then, of course, it's COVID. So you do have to have some COVID papers in there. But I think they're actually really, really interesting and not just, you know, your basic repeat COVID stories that you've heard a thousand times. These are pretty interesting. Yeah, well, as we get deeper into the COVID pandemic, we're definitely going to see more stuff and more complications of things. Your paper, I think, is on pericarditis, myocarditis. Is that right? And I've got one on... uh, Cerebral venous sinus thrombosis after vaccination. So Mm -hmm. that's going to be an interesting one. And I've got actually some really big RCTs. One is the BASICS trial, Mm -hmm. looking at balanced fluids versus normal saline. And I also have the budesonide study, which has now been sent to me by several listeners asking me to cover, where basically they're saying it cures COVID. So that's kind of a big one to look forward to. And then- You found a cure for COVID? I didn't find it. It was sent to me by multiple <laughs> listeners. I wasn't even looking, to be honest. But uh, And I've got a really cool paper. It's kind of close to the end. So you're really going to have to tough it out this month on the value of tape. I'm just going to leave it at that. Oh, that's a cliffhanger right yeah, there. Yeah, well, I like, like to keep people guessing. Where's you know? the tape? Where do you well, put the tape? Well, you, you got to listen. You got to listen Ooh. deep in the abstracts <laughs> this month. But this is honestly one you're not going to want to miss. It's an annals paper. It's so cool. And it's about tape. So, Britt, what's on tap for your first month? Well, first, we're going to go through, you know, just a few, like 20 papers. <laughs> and then Jess and Jenny are going to do their ultra summary. And then Ken and Swami are going to talk a little nerdy, although I heard that there was maybe some different names going around for this. Oh, you've been listening. Oh, so get nerdy with it. Uh, that's There's a lot of possibilities right get now. Get nerdy and with it. We na, actually na, haven't na, talked na, na. to... That's it. That's the one. <laughs> you know, we haven't talked to Ken and Swami officially about changing the name. I don't know if they listen, but I'm on board. Time to talk a little nerdy, just too hard to say. We need something that's quick, easy, catchy, a little jingle. You got to dance with it. Yeah, you got to dance with it. <laughs> So what are they going to nerd us about this They're month? getting nerdy with talking about industry-funded medical education. Mmm. Mm, nerdy. All right. Well, Britt, are you ready? Are you pumped? Are you excited? Are you caffeinated? I am very caffeinated. Let's do this. Let's do this. Paper chase. Abstract number one. The effect of intravenous fluid treatment with balanced solution versus a 0.9% saline solution on mortality in critically ill patients, the BASICS randomized clinical trial, this is by Zempieri et al. from JAMA, the illustrious JAMA. So, JAMA. you know, for decades, we have given almost all patients requiring IV fluids normal saline, right? That's just what we did. We hung a liter, we hung two liters. 
But there's been several studies in recent years that have sort of brought this practice into question, most notably the SMART trial, which found a lower rate of major adverse kidney events, their MAKE30 primary outcome, among ICU patients that got balanced crystalloids instead of normal saline. When people read this, I think everybody kind of got split into two camps. Some people felt like this was a game changer, right? Like we should be using LR now or plasma light. And other people felt like the composite outcome that they found a difference in was actually not that compelling. And the truth is the total fluid received was very, very small. It's only about a liter per group. So a lot of people were like, come on, a liter of one or the other? How could that actually make a difference? And lastly, that cluster randomization could introduce some bias, right? Because if they really wanted something subjective, like needing renal replacement therapy, that could be influenced by what kind of fluid you were getting if you wanted to show one thing over another. But if there really is a winner, it would be good to know it because real differences in mortality could have a large impact, even if they're small, when we look at the population of patients as a whole. So this is the BASICS trial, the Balanced Solutions in Intensive Care Study, a double-blinded randomized control trial from 75 ICUs in Brazil with a primary outcome of 90-day survival. The enrolled patients being admitted to the ICU where the attending physician thought that fluid expansion was needed and were at risk for some kidney injury, like something like, you know, make 30 So that included patients who were older than 65 years, who were hypotensive, septic, were on mechanical or non-invasive ventilation for at least 12 hours, were oliguric, had an elevated creatinine, had cirrhosis, or acute liver failure. And basically, they got randomized to 500 ml bags of either NS or plasma light for all fluids. And this was a blinded trial. So basically, they just came like with a letter on them, like A, B, C, or D. And it's like, okay, this is an A patient. And it was only you know, the study pharmacist or something who knew what A was, if it was normal saline or some balanced solution. There was actually a second randomization regarding the speed of infusion. So they gave fluids at a different rate, and they don't present the results in this paper, but they were published in a different paper. So if you want to read that, you can go read it. Spoiler alert, the rate didn't matter. <laughs> so they randomized over 11,000 patients, but then excluded 500. So, you know, that's like 5% or something like that, mostly due to refusal to provide consent, leaving 10,520 patients for analysis. So this is a big study. Baseline characteristics, very similar between the groups. Mean age of over 60, 44% women, just under 20% were septic, 60% hypotensive, and 44% required invasive ventilation. So they were sick. About 68% of patients did get a bolus prior to enrollment, so in the ED or something like that, before they got up to the ICU, and about half of them got less than a liter. So it was something, but it wasn't a lot. Patients in both groups got a median of 1.5 liters of fluid in the first day after enrollment and 4.1 liters during the first three days. So that's four times as much as they got in that SMART trial. And this is a little bit more reflective, I think, probably of what patients actually get when they go to the ICU when they're sick. They had primary outcome data available for all but 20 patients, 25, sorry, which is totally amazing out of 10,000 some patients. 90-day mortality 26.4% in the plasma light group versus 27.2% in the NS group. This is not a significant difference. They looked at 19 secondary outcomes, and this is a big study, so they were powered to look at a lot of secondary outcomes. Some of the ones worth noting 
is that the Make 30, right, the one that they saw in the SMART trial, was not different between the two groups. Renal replacement therapy, which is what they found in the SMART trial, was not statistically different as well. The absolute difference was about a percent. They also looked at multiple subgroups and only found one with a statistically significant interaction. Among patients with traumatic brain injury, the 90-day mortality was 31.3% for plasma light versus 21.1% for normal saline. So much lower for normal saline. And they can't really explain why that was the case. They don't know. And this wasn't a huge subgroup. But it is worth noting, particularly for the people who feel like, well, you know, I'm using LR for everybody now. That's just what I'm going to do. There is a possibility some subgroups could see harm from an LR therapy, or I guess in this case, plasma light therapy. And although not in the text of the manuscript, if you really look deep in it, because one of the things I hear people talk about a lot is the septic patient. Like we should just be using LR now for sepsis. So I don't know why it wasn't more prominent, but if you dig, 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 you find it. And the septic patient, the mortality was 47% versus 49%, not a statistically significant difference. So this is a very, very well done, large blinded randomized control trial with a 0.2% loss to follow-up rate at 90 days, which is amazing. Some of the weaknesses are that about a third of patients received some fluid prior to randomization. They only looked at one type of balanced solution when in reality there's several available. I don't even know if we have plasma light. We have LR at County. And a large portion of these patients look to be SICU patients. So that might be the reason why the overall mortality was a little bit less than you would expect from really sick patients going to the ICU. So data on this topic seems to be a little conflicting, right? This is much bigger than SMART trial, much bigger, and seems like there was no difference between the groups. But the big one everybody's waiting for is called the PLUS trial. And this is a very similar trial ongoing right now in New Zealand and Australia. So we're going to have to wait for the results of those. But for now, then this big one looks like these two are same, same. Same, same, but different. Not that different. <laughs> Editor's commentary. In this double-blind randomized control trial from Brazil among ICU patients who required fluids, the authors did not find a significant difference in 90-day mortality between plasma light and normal saline. This study was very well conducted with an amazing follow-up rate, but did have some limitations, including potential for contamination as fluids were given prior to randomization. Data are conflicting on the topic, and likely you will be able to interpret their data to strengthen your own current opinion. But if you are looking for evidence that one strategy is just plain wrong, this is not it. Abstract number two. This is rapid agitation control with ketamine in the emergency department, a blinded randomized control trial by David Barbic and all, and it was published in Annals of Emergency Medicine. So I think we're all pretty comfortable with knowing that we get a lot of psych patients and we need to control violent behavior pretty quickly, you know, for our safety, for the patient's safety. And traditionally, our go-to is some combination of an antipsychotic and a benzo. But this comes with a lot of different side effects, especially when you give that benzo to people that have been drinking a lot and then you get respiratory depression and antipsychotics, you get those undesirable side effects like dystonia and akesthesia. So this paper is really saying, you know, there's got to be a better option. And what about ketamine? It's hemodynamically stable and a lot of people are using ketamine for a lot of different reasons. So why not try it for agitated patients? And I think many of us feel pretty comfortable using ketamine 
But the question asked in this paper is, does ketamine more rapidly and safely achieve sedation when compared to that classic antipsychotic and benzo combination? This is a randomized controlled trial where the authors are trying to compare the time of onset, level of sedation, and adverse side effects of ketamine compared to the antipsychotic, here it's halidol, and the benzo, which they have as midazolam. So patients included in the study are 19 to 60 years old, and they have severe psychomotor agitation. And they measure this amount of agitation on the Richmond agitation score. So they have to have a score of three or more. And the intervention here is IM ketamine or IM haldol and midazolam. So all the patients that are included in the study get brought back to the trauma bay. They're on the monitor, they have full resuscitation equipment available, and they get either ketamine, which is five mg per kg. And because of the concentration of ketamine, the volume is pretty large. So for many of these patients, you kind of need multiple syringes to give this medication, which could questionably cause some issues when blinding the providers to this medication. And the other thing they gave was Haldol or Midazolam. So you had the ketamine group or the Haldol and Midazolam group. And both drugs were given IM. And both drugs were given IM. And the key here is the Haldol and Midazolam are mixed in one syringe. So the primary outcome is basically time of onset to adequate sedation. And they described that as being a RAS score of one or less. And that score, that agitation score, was recorded every five minutes until the score was either one or a total of 30 minutes had been reached. So it could be less than 30 minutes, but they were only observed for a max of 30 minutes. Now, in order to achieve 80% power with a harm reduction of 1.5, the study would require about 166 patients, so about 83 patients in each group. Well, this study took place from June to March of 2020. And they screened a bunch of patients, but unfortunately, they only enrolled 80 patients. So we had 40 in the ketamine group and 40 in the Haldol and the Dazlam group. And you probably remember around March of 2020, a little thing called COVID happened. And so that actually stopped this trial early because there were no in-person clinical research that was allowed. So unfortunately, this paper is underpowered and COVID is to blame. So in terms of who was included in the study, it was about 68% men, and this was in both groups, 68% men. The median age was about 35. And in terms of agitation scores, the agitation scores were actually a little bit higher for the patients that fell into the ketamine arm. So they found that when they gave the Haldol and Midazolam, the median time to sedation was about 14 minutes. And when they gave ketamine, the median time to sedation was five minutes. So that's a difference of about eight minutes. That's pretty huge, especially when you're dealing with a really angry, agitated psych patient. Serious reactions, there really were none. There were some adverse reactions in both groups. You know, the one for ketamine that we always worry about is the laryngospasm. One person had laryngospasm in the group. They didn't need intubation, a little bit of airway repositioning, and the patient was fine. Now, there's some limits to this study, and obviously one of them being COVID, because the study just had to stop early. But my biggest question here, kind of the issue that I have with this paper, is I think they ask a different question than I would have asked. I think we all probably feel pretty comfortable with ketamine, and we know that it works well for sedation. But I want to know what happened after that first 30 minutes of observation, because I'm usually a little hesitant to give ketamine to sedate an acutely agitated, violent patient because of the risk of the emergence reaction once the ketamine starts to wear off. So I think we can all agree that ketamine's great, 
It's usually pretty safe. It works pretty fast. But I am really curious about what happened to those patients once the sedation started to wear off. Yeah, I think that's a super good point because it's not like they pulled any punches here, right? They gave five milligrams per kg IM of ketamine. So they didn't do like a 2.5 half dose. That's a sedative dose. So, and I think that has implications as well, because depending on where you work, you may or may not be allowed to use ketamine at a sedative dose without getting like all the procedural sedation like forms all together and stuff like that. So that's something to consider. Now, they didn't see any emergency reactions in the first 30 minutes, which is good, but you're right. You know, maybe like at minute 31, everyone woke up taking swings at the docks or something like that. We just don't know. So I kind of agree. It's not that surprising that they went down faster. But I think we can learn at least that it looked safe from a patient perspective. Editor's commentary. This randomized control trial comparing ketamine to haldolamidazolam found that ketamine had a shorter time to adequate sedation. Given that this study was underpowered, it's difficult to make any definitive statement about safety of ketamine. I would have really loved if this paper monitored the patients for over 30 minutes so we could have had a little bit more insight into whether or not these patients experienced an emergence reaction after receiving ketamine. I think at this point, this paper doesn't really change my personal practice, but I am really excited to see more research on the use of ketamine for the agitated psych patient. Clinical practice. Abstract number three. Inhaled budesonide for COVID-19 in people at high risk of complications in the community in the UK. Principle, a randomized controlled open-label adaptive platform trial. And this is by you et al. from Lancet. Like I said, I've got like some really big trials this month up front. So the recovery trial showed us that steroids do have value in the treatment of patients with COVID-19. But the real benefit from recovery trial was seen among sick hospitalized patients. Now, systemic steroids are definitely not a benign therapy. So if the impact of them is not significant, then it's possible that the potential harms associated with steroids, of which there are lots, might outweigh the potential benefits. Inhaled corticosteroids, on the other hand, are widely available, inexpensive, considered generally to be safe, and have been proposed as a COVID-19 treatment because of their targeted anti-inflammatory effect in the lungs. Principle is a multi-center, open-label, multi-arm study from the UK looking at several potential interventions simultaneously among patients who are older than 65 and in those older than 50 with relevant significant comorbidities. So this is one of those trials where it's like a big group, they're testing a bunch of stuff simultaneously, and when they find something interesting, they publish on it, they let everybody know, and then they pivot and start studying something else. So, you know, we've covered a couple of these from these groups, and these are super cool. And they're all kind of born out of COVID. So they screened and enrolled patients seen in general medical practices, as well as through online and phone-based recruitment strategies who were unwell for less than two weeks, but not admitted to the hospital. So they were sick, but at home. Randomized them to inhale budesonide, 800 micrograms twice daily for 14 days, or usual care. There was no placebo group. Or to then one of the other interventions that was ongoing simultaneously in this big principal study. When the trial started, the primary outcome was COVID-19-related hospitalization or death within 28 days, 
But due to lower than anticipated admission rates, like people who got sent home didn't really get admitted very much when we were sending them home, they changed it to include illness duration because like, okay, let's see if we can make people feel better faster. So of 4,700 patients, about 1,000, just over 1,000 were randomized to budesonide, about 2,000 to usual care alone, and about 1,600 to other treatments. The primary analysis model includes 2,530 SARS-CoV-2 positive patients with 787 in the budesonide group, just over 1,000 in the usual care group, and just under 1,000 receiving other treatments. Generally speaking, patients were in their 60s, and about 80% had at least one comorbidity. And the vast majority of them, the comorbidity was hypertension. The second most frequently observed was diabetes and lung disease after that. Time to self-reported recovery was 11.8 days in the budesonide group versus 14.7 days in the usual care group. So that's a difference of three days, which did meet their pre-specified superiority threshold. Like I said, they did also want to look at hospital admissions. They added that one on as a secondary primary outcome. Hospital admission death was 6.8% in the budesonide group versus 8.8% in the usual care group. So that's an absolute difference of 2%, which actually was incredibly close to their pre-specified superiority threshold, but didn't quite get there. When they expanded the sample to include all patients, so not just those with confirmed COVID, because you know, we weren't testing everybody at some point in time. We're just saying, looks like COVID, smells like COVID, we think you're COVID, and we send you home. So when they included all those people, the results were basically exactly the same. Interestingly, the trial was stopped early at an interim analysis by the steering committee because they felt that we already met the superiority criteria for the feeling better, so we don't need to keep pushing to look at this hospitalization thing. So if they had gone just a little bit longer, it's possible that they would have seen a statistically significant difference there too. But, you know, these decisions are super tough and I get it. You know, they're trying to like be adaptive and be quick and they're like, okay, this sign looks good for people going home. Let's start enrolling people in something else, some other thing. Let's learn as much as we can about COVID. So a little bit of a bummer for that other like sort of hospitalization outcome, but I get it. Multiple secondary outcomes favored the budesonide group, including sustained recovery, daily illness severity rating over 28 days, the WHO-5 well-being index, healthcare service use, oxygen administration, time to sustain recovery, time to sustain alleviation of symptoms, and time to reduction of symptom severity. So the fact that we have now seen multiple groups organizing these big studies and testing lots of stuff quickly, switching focus when something comes out negative, is super impressive and super cool. And this is another one of those trials. Now, no trial is perfect, and there are some limitations here, including a non-consecutive sample of patients, a lack of blinding, no placebo with a subjective primary outcome, a median time from symptom onset of six days. So it wasn't like they were coming in on their first day of symptoms. Most of these patients were getting enrolled about a week after. That does kind of bring into question, this is really an ED question, you know, could we send them to their primary care provider to figure out if they need budesonide or not? There was no confirmation the meds were actually taken, right? They gave them budesonide, but it's possible nobody did them. It's not like you could do pill counts or puff counts or something with budesonide. An unknown impact of vaccination, right? That's really, for me, a very big one. The study was stopped in March of 2021, and at that point in time, only 1% of patients were fully vaccinated. So that's the one thing I'm really hung up on in this paper is like, what about if you're vaccinated, 
does the budesonide still work? Because we already know that attenuates symptoms. So for me, that's the biggest thing that's preventing me from just going, give everybody budesonide because most people are vaccinated now. Yeah. And that, actually, that was the biggest question I had for you about this paper, because I was waiting for like how many of these patients were vaccinated because, you know, were they just going to get better anyways? Were they just going to have a milder course anyways because they're vaccinated? But it sounds like not too many people were vaccinated at that point. Yeah, most of them were unvaccinated. So we just don't know how well it would work in a vaccinated patient. But you know, again, it's kind of like Tamiflu, right? It doesn't look like it's going to prevent you from dying, but it's going to make you feel better maybe three or four days faster, which that was me. I'm yeah. listening. I'm interested. Yeah. Editor's commentary. In this non-blinded trial of high-risk and elderly adults with COVID-19 treated as outpatients, budesonide shortened time to full recovery and generally made patients feel better across multiple measurements of health status they were unable to show an impact on death or hospitalizations. This seems safe, but its value among vaccinated patients is wholly unknown, and the decision can always be deferred to the regular doctor as the time to medication initiation here was almost a week. Abstract number four, this is ketamine administration for acute painful sickle cell crisis, a randomized control trial. This is by Al-Sharani et al., published in the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. So here's our second ketamine paper. And when we talk about sickle cell disease, there's a lot of people in the U.S. that suffer from sickle cell disease. And vaso-occlusive crisis is one of the most common complications of this disease. And as we know, it causes a lot of really severe pain, requiring IV medications, often hospitalization. And usually our standard treatment, our go-to, is IV opioids and IV fluids. But opioids are addictive, and people become tolerant, requiring higher doses. And studies show that ER docs are really less likely to redose these really high doses of opioids, which results in really poor pain control for the patient. So this paper looks at using something different from pain control, and da 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 da, it's ketamine. So this is a prospective, randomized, blinded control trial evaluating the efficacy and safety of single-dose ketamine infusion in controlling pain in patients with sickle cell disease suffering from a vaso-occlusive crisis. Now, included in this trial is patients over 18, of course, they have to have sickle cell disease, and they had a numeric pain rating scale, so that 1 to 10, 10 being the worst pain of their life, that pain had to be at least a 5 or more. Patient characteristics were pretty similar between both groups. And in both of these groups, the patients were randomized to either getting ketamine infusion or morphine infusion. So between the two groups, the mean age was 29. The mean pain score was about the same. It was eight across the groups. And they got randomized to ketamine or morphine. If you got randomized to the ketamine group, you got 0.3 mgs per kg. And that was put in a 100cc bag of normal saline infused over 30 minutes. And if you were randomized to the morphine group, you got 0.1 mgs per kg, also put in a 100cc bag of normal saline, and that was also infused over 30 minutes. Now, the nurses were blinded to which medication the patient got, and the nurses during this time really observed the patient, recorded vital signs, recorded pain scores, and they did this every 30 minutes up to about 180 minutes. Now, at 180 minutes, you had to make a decision on the dispo. So if the patient was awake and alert and their pain was controlled, at 180 minutes, that patient could get discharged. Now, if the pain was still five or more, they had side effects, 
or the pain just really wasn't controlled, they got admitted. So the primary outcome here that we're looking at is the pain rated, that pain scale measured every 30 minutes for a total of 180 minutes. And what they found was the pain scales were actually really similar between the groups. So neither ketamine nor morphine was better at controlling pain. Now, one of the secondary outcomes they looked at was how much extra pain medicine was required. How much extra medicine on top of the infusion of ketamine or morphine was required to get this patient's pain under control. And this is where it gets interesting. The ketamine group required less additional opioids. So it didn't control the pain necessarily better, but they didn't need more opioids. Both groups had a pretty similar rate of admission and vital signs, other things that they watched, all pretty similar between the groups. Limitations here is, I think, you know, one of the things I think about is it's at a single center. So it was done out of Saudi Arabia, which might be a little bit harder to broadly apply to patients everywhere. And also they excluded a lot of patients here. So I talked about they included age 18 with sickle cell, but they exclude a lot of patients. If you were pregnant, if you had a BMI over 40, if you had any neuro disease, if you had any seizures. So this is really just targeted at our otherwise healthy sickle cell disease patient. Yeah. And I think this is, you know, it's a good paper. We've seen a few other papers, also kind of small studies looking at ketamine for sickle cell, and it, it seems to work. You know, it does seem to have some analgesic requirements. Now, it's Important to point out, I think, that it's not given as a bolus. It's not. Right? Like how we sometimes do in these pain studies. They gave it as like a drip or something like some infusion. Right? A slow a, a infusion. slow infusion. I have seen, oh, I'm trying to, my brain is hurting, stretching back to think. I remember reading a paper looking at ketamine in the PCA form mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Like, and that seemed to work. So I think there's no question it worked. They look for like, you know, sort of emergence type reactions or feeling, you know, they did mention that they looked at any, uh, they looked at an at the RAS, the agitation mm -hmm. score, but it was a honestly pretty low to start with, and it didn't increase when either of the medicines were given. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't expect this to, like, a little, like, infusion like this to make people get really, really agitated. So what do you think? Would you try it? I'm super excited to try I'm it. I'm kind of excited, too. I want to try this on my next patient. Yeah, I think, I think this is one that now, this, they're all small studies, but we're kind of building an evidence base to say, like, this is probably going to work. So I don't know that I'll do it on the very next patient, but if there's somebody who is, you know, really looking, they're going to be difficult to control, I might ask them if they want to try something different and try something different. Absolutely. Editor's commentary. This randomized control trial compared ketamine to morphine for treatment of acute painful sickle cell crisis. The authors found that ketamine was not superior to morphine, but patients treated with ketamine required less additional opioid for pain control. We all recognize that opioid tolerance is a huge issue when treating patients with sickle cell disease. So I think that the use of low-dose ketamine is a reasonable non-opioid option for the right patient, and I'm really interested in incorporating this into my practice. Abstract number five, serum sodium concentration and mental status in children with DKA. This is by Glasser et al. from the journal Pediatrics. And of course, you see a paper by Glasser and DK. You know, Nate Cooperman is going to be on it. Their husband and wife. Oh, you knew that. So, there you go. Yeah, when I actually met Nate for the very first time when I was a very junior faculty, Mike and I actually met him together and we, he invited us for a beer. It's something I still remember. And now that I'm sort of in a professorial level myself, like sort of mentoring junior faculty, he talked to us a lot about his career and getting started and, you know, the work he did with his wife on DKA and the, you know, the cerebral edema work and like that big retrospective study they yeah, did. Yeah, yeah. So 
you know, have a soft spot on my heart for the good Nate Cooperman. And of course. Ooh, I'm so excited for this paper. So although not standard in adults, pediatric DKA protocols frequently recommend monitoring the serum sodium in addition to glucose and potassium and adjusting fluids based on observed trends. The thought behind this is that rapid changes in osmolality might increase the risk of cerebral edema. In the PCARN fluid trial, the authors found no association between either fluid rate or sodium content with neurologic injury. And here, the authors used data from that same study to look for factors that influence changes in sodium during treatment and see whether these are associated with changes in mental status or risk of cerebral injury. So as a reminder, in the original study, it was kids with DKA, and they were randomized in a 2 by 2 factorial design to get either half-normal NS or normal NS, and then to get it either fast or slow, fluid resuscitation. And it wasn't super fast or super slow. It was kind of like fluid deficit over 36 hours versus over 48 hours. So it wasn't huge differences in rate. The glucose-corrected sodium is, just as a little reminder, the measured sodium concentration plus 1.6 times the blood glucose minus 100 over 100. In case you don't kind of curious and don't feel like looking that up. Oh, yeah, I got that memorized, man. Yeah, well, neither did I. <laughs> so patients who had declines in glucose-corrected sodium concentrations between baseline and 4, 8, or 12-hour time points were then compared with those for whom the glucose-corrected sodium concentrations remained stable over the course of their DKA treatment or increased. They had 1,251 patients to include at the 4-hour analysis point just over 1,000 at 8 hours, and just under 900 at 12 hours, because people were getting off the drips by this point in time. In multivariable models, higher initial glucose-corrected sodium concentrations, higher initial chloride concentrations, previous diagnosis of diabetes, and assignment to the half-normal saline treatment arms were significantly associated with declines in corrected sodium concentrations at all measured time points. More rapid fluid administration was only associated with a decline in corrected sodium at 12 hours. But like I said, the rapid wasn't that rapid and the slow wasn't that slow. There were no differences in the frequencies of decline in GCS scores below 14 during DKA treatment between patients who had a decrease in their glucose-corrected sodium concentrations and those in whom the glucose-corrected sodium concentrations remained stable or increased. Cerebral edema was also the same between their groups. So In truth, the findings from this modeling that they did are not that unexpected. Patients with markers suggestive of greater free water loss will probably need to correct that deficit or lower their sodium over time. So that's, you know, I think what they probably expected to find. They're finding that cerebral injury was not increased among patients who had a decline in corrected glucose levels during their treatment is in contrast to other studies on this topic, right? They said, other studies have said, hey, if you drop that sodium too low, too quickly, you're going to see more cerebral edema. That's why these protocols are in place. So they didn't find that here. Now, the difference between their study, right? This was a prospective study. Most of the other ones in which those guidelines are based are retrospective and the patient monitoring was not standardized. So this one's the best, But this makes me so happy because that's the feared complication, right? With these kiddos that like, somehow your fluid resuscitation is going to make their brain swell. 
And that is terrifying. Yeah, and I think we're learning more and more that a lot of the things we thought to be true about this fluid resuscitation were all associations and not causative, right? right? It's like the patients who were super sick got more fluids and got cerebral edema, but we blamed it on the fluids, but it wasn't the fluids no. all along. So They were just sick and they already probably came with edema. <laughs> yeah, that's probably right. But for me, all the data is very compelling. That being said, I'm not rushing out there and dumping, a, I'm not like ignoring my hospital's DKA fluid resuscitation protocols. I'm more hoping that they're going to start to change. Edit this commentary. In this secondary analysis of prospectively collected data by the PCARN group, they found changes in corrected sodium values are influenced largely by initial free water deficit and decreases in these values were not associated with cerebral injury. You should still follow your hospital's pediatric DKA protocol, but know that there is a cohort of patients who might drop their sodium levels during treatment. And if you miss this because you're so focused on glucose or potassium or bicarb or something else, the kid is probably going to do just fine. Abstract 6. Pre-hospital narrow pulse pressure predicts need for resuscitative thoracotomy and emergent interventions after trauma. This is by Schellenberg et al. and published in the Journal of Surgical Research. So the American College of Surgeons has put together this list of criteria that, when is met in the pre-hospital setting, results in a trauma team activation. And one of these criteria has to do with blood pressure, and it's being hypotensive, so a systolic blood pressure less than 90. And at this time, the narrow pulse pressure isn't really part of the trauma activation protocol. And Sanze, just in case you forgot what a pulse pressure is, it's that systolic pressure minus the diastolic pressure, and usually normal 120 minus 80 is 40. So the definition of a narrow pulse pressure is really variable in the literature, but we're going to stick with something like 30. And hemorrhage is one of the biggest causes of a narrow pulse pressure. It's your patient's way of saying like, hey, I'm at major risk of impending circulatory collapse. Look at me. But to be honest, it's something I never calculate. I've got to admit it. In this paper, the authors hypothesize that early recognition of a narrow pulse pressure may be a way to quickly identify patients that will likely require emergent interventions to control bleeding. So this is a single-center study, and Sanjay, it comes out of USC. Yes, and the senior author is somebody who's probably very familiar to most people listening to this, Kenji Anaba. Kenji! <laughs> so this is a retrospective observational study where they reviewed trauma patients' charts from 2008 to 2020. And the goal here was to examine patients that had a pre-hospital narrow pulse pressure and try and figure out if that narrow pulse pressure could predict the severity of traumatic injuries. So included in the study, it's really big. There's like almost 40,000 patients. And they took those 40,000 patients and they divided them into three groups based on their pre-hospital blood pressure. So there was the hypotensive patients, right? So their blood pressure is less than 90. That was one group. It was about 1,000 patients. And then they looked at patients with a narrow pulse pressure. So they couldn't be hypotensive. They're normotensive, but they had a narrow pulse pressure of less than 30. And that was about 2,000 patients. And then all the rest of these patients, about 36,000 patients, fell into the normotensive group. This was kind of all other trauma patients. So I think, let me just stop you for a second. I want to make sure I understand it correctly. Yes. Because this is sounding like an interesting question. Like, I get it. When a sick trauma patient's on the way in, if they're hypotensive, I'm paying special attention. To of them. course. Okay. And what they're trying to ask here is, is there also a subgroup of normotensive patients who I'm supposed to pay special attention to? Exactly. Okay, great. 
Yes, you got it. So when they looked at these three groups of patients, you've got your hypotensive, your narrow pulse pressure, but normotensive, and then your normotensive patients. They looked at the injury severity score. So if an injury severity score of over 16, that's what they were looking for in this group. And basically, that just means these patients had really severe injuries. So 37% of the hypotensive patients had an injury severity score of over 16. 21% of these patients in the narrow pulse pressure group had a really high injury severity score, and only 11% in the normotensive. So that kind of makes sense, right? The hypotensive patients were the sickest, the normotensive patients were not as sick, and the narrow pulse pressure group kind of fell in the middle. They weren't as sick as the hypotensive, but they were definitely sicker than the normotensive. So the authors also found out that the narrow pulse pressure was independently associated with need for trauma intervention. So what is a need for trauma intervention? They needed, you know, massive transfusion. They went to the ICU. They needed to go to the OR or they went to IR. And they also found that the narrow pulse pressure was associated with the need for resuscitative thoracotomy. So, you know, there are some limitations to every study. Like you said, this is a single center study. But it's at a huge trauma center, right? You guys see a lot of trauma. And it's a retrospective observational study, which could potentially have introduced some bias. But in the end, I think this points out that maybe narrow pulse pressure is something that we should be paying more attention to because these seem to be a sicker cohort of patients. Yeah, I also wonder if this should be something that maybe your EMS department should sort of be thinking about. Because when you're in the field and you're trying to make decisions on whether or not a patient should go to a trauma center, right? This is like all these patients did end up coming to a trauma center, right? right? So that is also a limitation because even if they were normotensive, there was something about the trauma that made them come to a trauma center. Penetrating in the box, something serious. Something, right? Otherwise, they would have just taken them to like the local, you know, whatever, the level two or something like that. Totally. So, you know, this is probably skewed a little bit sicker, but I wonder if it's something like an EMS agency could say like, hey, if we're on the fence, should we be looking at like a pulse pressure to sort of break the tie like for us, you know, and then make sure they get to the right place because their chance of having intervention is a little bit higher. So absolutely. I don't know if it's perfect science. Sorry, Kenji, but uh, I do think it's interesting. And I think it's just a data point that gives us more information. I think that's the key. Yeah, that's a really good point. I wouldn't like, you know, don't hang bust, your hat on it. Yeah, I wouldn't bust out. Like, I wouldn't start, you know, holding the patient down, cutting open their chest because their pulse pressure's low. <laughs> but it is one more thing to make you go, mm, I'm just going to spend a little extra time in here and be extra careful. Bring that chest tube tray a little bit just closer. Just an inch or two closer. Edit this commentary. In this single center retrospective observational study, a narrow pulse pressure was found to be independently associated with presence of traumatic injuries and need for resuscitative thoracotomy. Now, where I work, I work at a trauma center. And if a case doesn't meet obvious trauma criteria, I get called back to our base station and asked if I want to activate. And I always look at the vital signs, but to be honest, I never calculate a pulse pressure. After reading this paper, I think that identifying a narrow pulse pressure can be a really helpful piece of information and I think could offer some early recognition to help us detect patients with more serious traumatic injuries. Abstract number seven, the association between end tidal CO2 and return of spontaneous circulation after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest with PEA. This is by Crickmer et al. from Resuscitation. 
So for a patient with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and PEA, the only objective pieces of information we'll have access to are often rhythm or you know, maybe a full EKG and end tidal CO2 values. Now, previous studies have examined end tidal CO2 readings at various time points during cardiac arrest as a possible predictor of ROSC, survival to admission, and survival to hospital discharge, and is largely thought that an end tidal CO2 of greater than 20 after intubation or after 20 minutes of resuscitation and ACLS is the best predictor we have of ROSC from the pre-hospital setting. Now, here the authors are basically asking if there's value of a delta or a trend that would in essence predict who might get to that greater than 20 point instead of like waiting for 20 minutes of ACLS. Say, oh, this person's on the rise. Let's go. You know, like if there's some way we can kind of predict that. So this is a retrospective study of prospectively collected pre-hospital data from Ontario, Canada on patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in PEA with at least two end-tidal CO2 values. They could calculate a delta. The delta end-tidal CO2 was defined as the difference between the initial end-tidal CO2 after an advanced airway had been placed and the last recorded end-tidal CO2, either just before ROSC or before they called the code. So of the 208 patients in their sample, 32 obtained pre-hospital ROSC. Their findings, truthfully, are a little bit hard to follow. It is resuscitation, after all, and those of you who've listened for a while know how I feel about this journal. So the initial end-tidal CO2 was 40 in the patients who got ROSC versus 35 in the patients that did not. The finals were 51 and 30. The median time to first end-tidal CO2 reading was 24 minutes after a start of resuscitation. Now, they run a regression model with lots of variables, and in it found a positive association between delta and tidal CO2 and pre-hospital ROSC with a pretty high odds ratio of 1.74. But if you look at the scatter plot of the raw data, honestly, it looks like a lot of noise. It looks like there's quite a bit of variability in the two groups. It's all over the place. I get the best fit lines look like there's a difference, but it's very noisy. Now, they give some test characteristics for the delta and tidal CO2 at different thresholds, and essentially end up saying that a delta end tidal CO2 of greater than 20 has a specificity for a future ROSC event of 95%. Now, the ROSC rate overall of 32% is much higher than in similar studies on this topic, and is probably due to the fact that patients who did not survive long enough to get an advanced airway and two end tidal CO2 values were functionally excluded, right? So they're sort of trying to say this represents everybody in the world with PEA arrest in the out-of-hospital setting, but it doesn't, right? It really is kind of, they're on the healthier end of a you know, PEA spectrum, if there is actually a spectrum there. But at the end of the day, the data and the analysis in this paper are very, very messy. And when we did the selections this month, since Mike isn't sitting in front of me, normally I'd yell at him for making me cover a <laughs> resuscitation paper. I can't yell at Britt. Don't yell her, at me. It's not her fault. I didn't do it. Mike really had it in that this was going to be like a really good paper. He was sort of intrigued by it. And Mike, now I'm virtually very mad at you. Next he time picked I see it just you, gonna, for you. Yeah, well, I ended up with it. So, <laughs> But it is a very, very, very messy paper. And I feel like the patients with a high delta end tidal CO2 might have one of several other unmeasured variables that explain their increased ROSC rate. And it's not just the delta and tidal CO2. I'd also like to know the code length difference between the two groups, which they did not provide. But 
even if we take their findings at face value and we say, okay, everything they found is true and a delta of 20 has some value, I'm not sure if that would increase or decrease futile out-of-hospital cardiac arrest transports, mm-hmm. right? Because they didn't look at like discharge from the hospital or something like that, right? The, the outcome we really care about. If we're transferring a bunch of people to the ED, if now we say, okay, if the delta is kind of big, you know, then we'll bring them in as well. Mm-hmm. But then they die, right? When they get there, that's actually increased cost and everything else. So we just yeah. don't know how this would really impact anything. And then, of course, this number of 20, it's just kind of weird, you know? It's like, okay, if the Delta's 20, we're supposed to bring them as well, but we're supposed to bring them if it's before 20 anyways, you know? So you I'm wouldn't just have like, a Delta in the field. Yeah, so I'm not even <laughs> sure, like, you know, what to make of any of this. So in theory, to me, it makes sense that a Delta or trend might have some predictive value, but I really don't think we can put much stock in any of the numbers they give us in this paper, even though I want to. Thanks, Mike. Editor's commentary. In this study looking at out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients in PEA, the authors suggest that a delta end-tidal CO2 after advanced airway placement of greater than 20 is a specific finding for ROSC, but I am very skeptical that unmeasured variables that cause them to continue the code in the first place are actually responsible for the ROSC. Further, there is no assessment of ED or hospital disposition. The idea of looking at the trend does strike me as a good one, but this is not the study to tell us what trend or what delta n tidal CO2 actually has value. Abstract 8. Interrater agreement and reliability of burn size estimations between emergency physicians and burn unit. This is by you et al. and it's published in the Journal of Burn Care and Research. So burns cause increased permeability, lots of fluid shifts and edema, and appropriate fluid resuscitation is key to burn management. But I think of this as kind of like that Goldilocks situation, right? Not enough fluid, and then there's complications from hypovolemia. Too much fluid, and we've over-resuscitated them, they have an increased mortality rate. So there's a variety of ways to calculate how much fluid a burn victim should receive. Probably the most common that we're all familiar with is Parkland. I hear the modified Brooks is actually supposed to be better. But in the end, they all depend on correctly estimating the total body surface area that's burned. And it's us, it's ER doctors that are first estimating the burn size and starting fluid resuscitation. Now, older studies suggest that ER doctors, that we're not really that great at estimating burn size, and often we say that the burn size is bigger than it is, which leads to over-resuscitation with IV fluids. So those older studies, though, traditionally compare burn size estimations between referring ER docs, so outside of the burn unit, to the accepting facility with a burn unit, and says that those referring docs tend to overestimate, we give too much fluid. But this study looked at the inter-rater agreement between an academic ER doc who's working in a hospital that has a burn unit. So the burn unit is in the hospital. You're not referring out, you're not transferring, it's in the hospital. So this took place at a single level one trauma center in Texas, where the burn patients enter through the hospital, they're evaluated by an ER doctor. In theory, the ER doctor records their burn size, and then they consult the burn team. The burn team comes down and they separately record their total body surface area estimation. And 
in theory, these are supposed to be remain, you know, separate from one another because they actually use different EMR systems. So this is a retrospective study looking at the burn unit estimation versus the ER docs estimation. And they use the burn unit estimation as the gold standard because this was approved by a burn surgeon. Their primary endpoint here, they were looking for the inter-rater agreement of burn size between the ER doctor and the burn unit measured by the Cohen-Kappa coefficient. So that kappa ranges from negative one, meaning there's no agreement between the two at all, to positive one, which means the ER doc and the burn unit doc agree perfectly. So what they found was they got a kappa of 0.58. And this, they said, correlated with eh, moderate agreement between the ED doc and the burn unit doc on the estimation of the burn size. Now, I got to say, there's some secondary endpoint with a lot of fancy methods and calculations that maybe I don't fully understand, but I'm going to trust them here. And they said that they also calculated this interclass correlation coefficient. And when they did this calculation, they said that there was actually excellent reliability between the ED doc and the burn doc at, you know, estimating burn size. So I think, you know, there's a couple limitations here because... We don't know how separate those estimations really were. I mean, the burn doctors and the ER doctors, they work in the same hospital. You really think they don't chat at all? Maybe they were down at the same time and they had like, I don't know, I'm thinking 20, you're thinking 25. I don't know how separate those estimations really were and if there was truly no communication between the ER doc and the burn doctor. Yeah, I think that's right. That's a really important limitation. We don't know if they decided together, you know, and that's why they look so similar because they worked together. They had a handshake. They said 28 and they both wrote down 28. And, you know, the other limitation, too, is when reading this paper, they don't give like really an assessment of the magnitude of the difference when there was a difference. Yeah. Right. Because if the E-Doc says 20 percent and the burn doc says 88 percent, that's probably messing up your fluids. But sure. if one says 20 and one says 25, from my read of this paper, and it was a little messy, I agree with you, it seemed like they would count that as a disagreement, but I'm not sure it's a clinically significant right. disagreement. So right. that's like kind of another, for me, limitation is we just don't know, even when we were off, how much we were off by. Because if it's not that much, Did then who cares? Editor's Commentary This single-center, non-blinded, retrospective study set out to compare total body surface area of burn estimations between ED docs and burn unit physicians, all located in an academic center with a co-located burn unit. The authors found that there was better agreement and reliability between the ED and the burn unit in estimating burn size that had been seen in previous studies. But the key here, these are academic docs working in a hospital with a burn unit, and they're likely exposed to more burn patients and burn management. Now, we can't all work in a hospital with a burn unit, but I think more education on burn management in our residency training could potentially lead to improved fluid resuscitation and potentially better patient outcomes. Abstract number nine. Cerebral venous thrombosis after vaccination against COVID-19 in the UK, a multi-center cohort study. This is by Perry et al. And the second paper this month from Lancet. That's just how damn good the recording is this month. Whoop, whoop. Shortly after the introduction of the CHADOX, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, very rare cases of severe venous thrombosis with thrombocytopenia started to be reported. And shortly after this, cases also started to get reported after the administration of other adenovector vaccines. 
the primary one being Johnson & Johnson. Although similar in presentation and maybe in pathophysiology to heparin-induced thrombosis and thrombocytopenia, or HIT, this is a relatively new condition and has a new name. This is like a whole new disease that we have invented, discovered, something like that. And so we have to name it something weird and complicated. No, it's not too complicated. Not too bad. So the old one was HIT and the new one is VIT. VIT. So it's either, well, it depends where you live. In certain parts of the world, they're calling it VIT, which is vaccine-induced thrombosis and thrombocytopenia. Other parts of the world are calling it vaccine-induced prothrombotic immune thrombocytopenia, and that's VIPIT. VIPIT. So VIPIT or VIT. I kind of like VIPIT. I do too. They stick with VIT in this one because that's what they're calling it in the UK. (laughs) But I kind of like VIPIT good too. So (laughs) this has led to concern when a patient presents with a headache post-vaccine administration. And everybody who's listening to this, I know is rolling their eyes and is going, oh, this, this is, like I said, this is a whole new issue. This never happened with flu vaccine or something like that because we're reading about these cerebral venous sinus thromboses from the vaccines. We're seeing patients with headache after their, you know, vaccine. So what are we supposed to do? This has created a whole new headache Ooh, for the ED doc. Clever. I just came up with that. Yeah. So the authors of this paper describe patients with VIT-associated cerebral venous sinus thrombosis and compare them to patients with cerebral venous thrombosis without VIT both from this cohort of reported patients and from historical data from like a larger study that they reference and are involved in. So this is a multi-center cohort study from the UK where clinicians were asked to submit reports of all cases in which COVID-19 vaccination preceded the onset of cerebral venous sinus thrombosis or cortical vein thrombosis, regardless of the type of vaccine, interval between vaccine and onset of the cerebral venous thrombosis symptoms, or blood test results to the UK Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, the MHRA. And then people involved in the study went back to all those patients' charts and extracted all the data they needed. So they were just asking them to refer cases to this central agency who's going to look at this issue, among many other issues that they look at. They defined VIT as the lowest platelet count being less than 150 And if the D-dimer was measured, the highest value recorded was greater than 2,000. They did not require an anti-platelet factor 4 antibody test, which is something we use in HIT and something that seems to be used very frequently in VIT as well. But, you know, things are changing very quickly in all these COVID-related complications. So of 95 cases that they had data on and had a confirmed CVT, 70 of them had VIT and 25 did not. This is a really, really big Lancet paper. And if you're interested in this topic at all, you've never heard of it, and you just kind of want a primer and you want to read it, it's worth going through it. So it's so meaty, honestly, that I'm just going to try to present a few of the highlights. The median age of the VIT group was lower than that of the non-VIT group, 47 versus 57 years. The median time interval between vaccination and CVT symptom onset was nine days in patients with VIT versus 11 days in patients without. And patients with VIT were sicker. They had more veins thrombosed, an average of three versus two, as well as a higher mortality or dependency for daily living. So they were unable to function independently. And it's high. 47% of the patients with VIT either died or needed someone to help them every day. 
versus 16% of the patients who also had a clot but didn't have VIT going along with it. This adverse primary outcome occurred less frequently among patients with VIT who received non-heparin-based anticoagulation, just like you would for HIT, compared with those who got heparin, 36% versus 75%, as well as among patients who got IVIG, 40% bad outcome versus 73% bad outcome. So based on their data, they actually propose a new set of diagnostic criteria for VIT, but This target, honestly, is so rapidly moving, I think it's going to be different even by the time this recording comes out. We're recording it in October. It'll come out December 1st, the Christmas edition. I mentioned that at the beginning. Shoot. Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas out there. (laughs) So I think it'll be different, and it's not really worth understanding the nuances here. The big thing about this paper is we learn a lot about VIT-associated cerebral venous thrombosis here. But the data is limited by essentially being a convenient sample, having small numbers that limit the strength of the comparison between the two groups, and age results being affected by a focus at the time when you know, they're sending in these cases on vaccinating older patients, and this limitation of not including antiplatelet factor four antibodies. Just so you know, there are scoring systems out there that are being developed that look at VIT just like they do at HIT, at the time of this recording, none have been validated. But they're all focusing on the four T's, just like HIT does, which includes thrombocytopenia, timing, thrombosis, and the other one that gets me always agitated is, is there an other cause? That's the fourth T of the thrombosis. Other, that's the fourth <laughs> T. That's the fourth T in HIT as well. And, you know, made this cool thing called the VIPIT. And the vi- you couldn't get rid of that fourth T for me, <laughs> knowing how much it bothers me. So, you know, this is, I think this is really good information. We learn a lot about this. And it's, it's a difficult case, but we're getting a little better at figuring out who should be worked up. Yeah, I mean, this is so interesting to me because, you know, once the J&J came out and then everyone said, oh my gosh, these brain clots. I mean, I never, hardly ever get a CT cerebral venogram. And all of a sudden, I'm getting all these CTs that I normally would have never ordered. And I might have missed this, but did they say which vaccine seemed to be more associated with VIT or yeah, VIVIT? It, it's, it's really both the adenovirus vector vaccine. Okay. So it's the AstraZeneca, the Oxford, and the Johnson & Johnson. To be, uh-huh. If you saw one with Pfizer and Moderna, this would be like an epic sort of case reportable situation. It really is those two. Mm-hmm. That this, so that can help eliminate workups a little bit. But, you know, again, this is only 100 cases in a place. Don't forget, this is in the UK where they don't really have Pfizer. They're using this right. over there. So, you know, right. maybe it's there. We just haven't reported on it because it's not a U.S.-based study. So I, It's still just so rare. It's so rare, but we have to have an approach to deal we with do. this. And I think it's evolving. I think it's coming quickly. But you're right. Right now, it's like a frustrating situation. Editor's commentary. In this large and detailed study, of VIT-associated cerebral venous thrombosis from the UK, we learn a lot, including that this entity is incredibly rare, patients who get it have poor outcomes, and that non-heparin anticoagulants and IVIG are probably the preferred treatment. If the patient presents with a headache in the right time window, which is a few weeks after vaccination, particularly if they were vaccinated with the adenovector type, I would start with a platelet count and D-dimer and consider imaging if these are abnormal or if there are neurologic findings. 
and eventually an antiplatelet factor for ELISA antibody test will be needed to confirm the diagnosis. Abstract 10, Myocarditis and Pericarditis After Vaccination for COVID-19. This is by Diaz et al. and published as a research letter in JAMA. So in keeping with the theme of COVID and vaccine issues, we all know that cardiac inflammation is a it's pretty well-known but really rare side effect of the COVID-19 vaccine. So this study reviewed records from thousands of vaccinated individuals to see just how often this side effect occurred and who we saw it more commonly occurring in. So this is a really large retrospective study. It comes from 40 different hospitals in Washington, Oregon, Montana, even L.A., and they were all part of the Providence Health System. So they all shared the same EMR, so that's how they collected all this data. Patients' records were screened for cases of either myocarditis, pericarditis, or myopericarditis, and they kind of divided these patients, the the time period, into two periods, pre-COVID vaccine and post-COVID vaccine. The pre-period and the vaccine period. So pre-vaccine period was January 2019 to January 2021, and then the vaccine period was defined as February 2001 to May 2021. So during this period, they had like over 2 million patients that received at least one of the vaccines. Across the board, it was kind of 50-50 between Pfizer and Moderna, and about only 3% got the J&J. So when we look at the results, and let's just look at pericarditis, of all these thousands of patients, 37 people seem to get vaccine-related pericarditis. So they saw this as a rate of 1.8 per 100,000 patients. It was pretty 50-50, again, between Pfizer and Moderna. Of these 37, there were 23 had gotten Pfizer, 12 had gotten Moderna, and two had gotten the J&J. Overwhelming amount of males that fell into the pericarditis group, there was 73% male, and the median age here was 59. And then they looked at the onset of symptoms after the vaccine, and it seemed like the median onset was about 20 days post the most recent vaccine. Now, 40% developed pericarditis after the first dose, and 60% developed pericarditis after the second dose. And really not too many, but 35% were admitted, none of them went to the ICU, and they only stayed in the hospital for about one or two days. And most importantly, nobody died. Okay, so when we look at the myocarditis group, so the vaccine-related myocarditis, only 20 people out of thousands and thousands seemed to get vaccine-related myocarditis. And this was a rate of one per 100,000. Now again, an overwhelming amount of males. So 75% of the cases were male. And the median age here is, is much lower. It was 36 compared to 59 for pericarditis. Now, myocarditis also occurred much sooner. The symptom onset was only about 3.5 days post the vaccine. And where we saw, you know, with the pericarditis group, they got it either after the first dose or the second dose is kind of 50-50. When it comes to myocarditis, 80% of the people develop symptoms after the second dose. Now here, you know, with myocarditis, a little bit more concerning, 95% of these patients got admitted. All of them were discharged within two to three days. And again, most importantly, nobody died. So this study found that pericarditis actually affected patients much older. So they were, you know, 59 compared to the myocarditis that was an age of about 36. And their symptoms for pericarditis didn't start till pretty far out past that vaccine, 20 days for pericarditis and only 3.5 days for myocarditis. Now, I think it's also really important to point out that 
People just get pericarditis and myocarditis in general out there in the world without getting vaccines. So the big question here is, was it the vaccines that really were increasing in incidence in the rate of pericarditis or myocarditis, or did the incidence rate just kind of stay the same? So when we look at the mean monthly cases of pericarditis during the pre-vaccine period, the authors state that there was about 49 cases versus 78 cases during the vaccine period. And when we look at myocarditis, the mean monthly cases of myocarditis during the pre-vaccine period was about 17 versus 27 during the vaccine period. So both the incidence of myocarditis and pericarditis definitely seemed to go up during the vaccine period. And the authors found that this was a significant increase for both myocarditis and pericarditis cases. Yeah, I think this is useful information. You know, again, with all this COVID stuff, we're just trying to figure it out. And I think even as providers, people are starting to ask questions about like, okay, wait, I thought I was like, well, kids who got this, but now you're telling me adults get this too, because issues are coming up now. We're sort of in like a booster phase of our lives. And, you know, I have heard some providers saying, well, if there's some risk to my heart, I'm just going to avoid the booster. I think my immunity is fine. So I, I think that This is actually creating some controversy like in the COVID world and the vaccination world. I'm not exactly sure how to deal with it, but. I I mean, I think that the numbers here, definitely the patients are much older than we had seen in prior studies. I work on the Corpendium COVID book chapter, and so we have a lot of information on this. And the earlier studies all were kind of quoting, you know, your male teenagers, like 12 to 29, so much younger. And now this is a really big group of, I mean, this is like 2 million patients, and we're really seeing much older people getting some of these complications, although it's super, super rare. Yeah, I think for me, that is a big take home because it's like the whole, you know, I know it's not the whole country. It feels like the whole country of the US, they vaccinated like 1 bajillion people and we found 20 cases. So it's not like it's so I'm tiny. freaking out about it or something, but I, and let's maybe be it's a little bit of a real risk. COVID also causes a lot of cardiac inflammation. So you want to get sick with COVID and still get cardiac inflammation? That's a good point. We don't know if these patients had COVID previously before they got vaccinated. And, you know, there's a few things unknown, but maybe there's an increased risk of something. Very little. Little one. Edit this commentary. In this large retrospective review of pericarditis and myocarditis cases associated with COVID-19 vaccines, the authors found that the incidence of pericarditis was about 1.8 per 100,000, and myocarditis cases were about 1 per 100,000. I was pretty surprised by the median ages noted in this paper, and the patients were much older than previously noted in earlier studies. Either way, this is an incredibly rare side effect. It self-resolves relatively quickly with rest and NSAIDs, and in my opinion, the risk of pericarditis and myocarditis should not keep people from getting vaccinated. Abstract number 11. Evaluation of digital otoscopy in pediatric patients, a prospective randomized controlled clinical trial. This is by Kleinman et al. from the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. So examining kids' ears is technically challenging and for me can be both physically and emotionally draining. I don't know. I think I'm pretty good at it. Yeah, you got to like, you know, wrap your <laughs> head or have the mom like wrap your their arm around the head and pin them over to the side. And I feel like screaming. I'm sweating by the end of it. I'm crying. They're crying. It's yeah. horrible. It's, it's, it's a tough situation. And making matters even worse is that it has been shown that junior learners 
So medical students and residents are not as proficient as senior providers when examining an ear, which makes sense. They haven't yeah. done as many. It's kind of hard okay. and they're just not as good as it, often resulting in the need for two exams on the same kid. So like double your pleasure or pain or whatever. So fun. Yeah, it's the worst. So digital otoscopes have the potential to improve tympanic membrane visualization and remove the need for repeat exams. So what they did here was an unblinded randomized trial comparing the CellScope Oto, which is a smartphone-based digital otoscope. If you look it up online, it basically literally like hooks up to the back of an iPhone and has one of those little plastic ear things built into it. Wait, you have you have the otoscope little cone on your phone? On your iPhone, right out of the camera. It comes right out of the camera lens. Sounds kind of contaminated right so well you have a work you have a work iphone maybe it's not an iphone maybe it's like a you know iphone 6 or something someone, someone <laughs> donated it back obviously you're not giving a 13 for this purpose <laughs> right that would be crazy <laughs> so they compared that to the traditional otoscope with a primary goal of evaluating accuracy of the ear exam between trainees and attendings so the randomization a little strange basically in each sort of two to four week rotation in the ed trainees were randomized to use either the digital otoscope or the traditional ones. Like you showed up your first day, it sounds like, and they're like, here's how you examine an ear or here's how you examine an ear. They like kind of show you which way they want you to do it for the time that you're there. Among 188 kids, 375 ears were examined by 85 trainees and 22 supervisors. It's basically 50-50 between the digital otoscope and the traditional otoscope. The accuracy of ear exam findings between trainees and supervisors, so I think what they are loosely sort of calling concordance, improved by about 11% using the CellScope OTO, 75% versus 64%. But importantly, for me, this is the big one. There were much fewer repeat supervisor exams performed in the digital otoscope group, so the iPhone 1, 27% versus 98%. So almost every kid got a repeat exam in the traditional. Okay, I have a question, though. If you do the original exam, you look, and then whether or not the attendee believes you, they have to come in and look again. Correct. But if you do it on the phone... You take a picture. You something. just take a picture and mm -hmm. show them. So they're not, they're not actually in the room looking at it. You just take a picture. They show you if they're satisfied with it. They're you like... You got it. You got it. Okay. That's that, and to me, that's the big difference. Now, it does get a little messy if we really want to get in the weeds on this one because it sounds like wherever they're working, attendings are sort of encouraged to go back in and do their own exam. So that hundred is probably inflated a little bit. But if you think about your own practice, you know, if someone's really concerned about an ear, I'm probably going to go take a look. Whereas like you said, Britt, if I had a picture of it yeah. and I could see the TM, I probably wouldn't. So even though the numbers might not be accurate, the theory behind it seems right. And I mean, the picture's a thousand words, right? You can listen to anybody kind of fumble through what I think it's kind of red and maybe bulging and then maybe fluid. And then you can just see and be like, ah, yeah. that's a Titus media. <laughs> I think that's right. But then the critical question is, is the picture of adequate quality? And we get to that right. in a second, because that would be the big, ugh, the, the bummer of this paper. So there were no differences in mean trainee confidence in their exam, which they measured on a Likert scale, and no statistically significant differences in antibiotic prescription rates when using a digital versus a traditional otoscope. But the absolute values were kind of different, actually, 12% versus 22%. So, you know, more people who got the traditional actually got antibiotics. Maybe that's hypothesis generating for a future study. Now, they don't present a lot of things I'd be curious about. Usually when we cover these technology papers, 
satisfaction is a big one. Like they want to talk about, did the provider like, was it was easy? How much time did it take? Did you have to charge the phone? Was it dead sometimes? Like so that sort of feasibility data isn't here for the digital otoscope. But they do report that twice as many providers reported an obstructed view with the digital otoscope. They sounds cool, the little fingers on the camera lens, they put in the ear, but they just couldn't see anything, which now, is a problem. Was the little cone the same as the, the one same. you put? Okay, so it can't be the cone. Well, but it may be how you handle it or how you hold it. Like a little holding awkward it, in your hand? Maybe a little awkward in the hand. I'm not sure. Maybe you feel uncomfortable pushing it in. Maybe it doesn't have the strength, the stability. That's all part of what is normally a feasibility that they didn't include here. And 15 of the trainees actually ended up crossing over from digital to traditional. So that's, that is <laughs> some comment on feasibility that they're like, this thing sucks, or it's hard yeah. to use, or it's always dead, or whatever, or whatever, whatever. Yeah. So I don't know, Britt, if you're intrigued by this data, I have some bad news for you. This product is discontinued. Oh, no. Yeah, it's no longer sold. Interestingly, it was discontinued before they even did the study. So... And in fact, that's why they did it. It sounds like this company was like, hey, who wants all this free stuff? And they're like, we like free stuff. We'll take free stuff. So they took it and then did the study. That being said, there are several similar devices out there. So it's like this one company's is gone, but there are other ones that, per my look, look just about the same, right? Being sold as a new, cool technology, something like that. And for me, I think that's one of the key roles of EMA. If something cool and new comes out that might make our lives a little bit easier, we're going to bring it to you. So you got me all excited about this, and then you told me it's discontinued, but there is hope. I could still find one of these devices. There's hope that you might not have to look in as many ears on your next attending shift. And that's a good thing. I love that. Editor's commentary. In this randomized trial from a pediatric ED, the authors found that using a digital otoscope essentially resulted in a higher agreement between trainees and supervisors when examining kids' ears. My gut is an experienced provider could get an adequate view with either device. But if something can eliminate the need for a repeat exam, I'm interested. You might even say, I'm all ears. Abstract 12. Experience of a smartphone ambulatory EKG clinic for emergency department patients with palpitations. This is a single-center cohort study by Colin et al. and published in the European Journal of Emergency Medicine. So I feel like we have some themes today. There was the ketamine theme, and then there was the COVID theme, and now we have the smartphone theme. So this study is actually a follow-up study on a recent FDA-approved cardiac monitoring device, and it's called the Alive Core Cardia. And it's basically a device that links to your smartphone and allows you to record your heart rate and rhythm. And so they basically kind of state that, you know, palpitations and presyncope, it's a super common thing that we see in the ER. but we often don't necessarily find the cause. We get this EKG and it's just kind of a brief moment in time, but we don't necessarily always have a great explanation for patient symptoms. Was it vasovagal? Was it dehydration? Or did they actually potentially have some kind of underlying cardiac dysrhythmia? This device was basically developed to help catch those cardiac causes of palpitations in the outpatient setting. And it's really cool. If you Google it, you can see pictures of this. It's basically a rectangular small device that you stick onto the back of your smartphone, and then there's two metal squares. And when you start to experience any symptoms, you just place two fingers on each square, and then the smartphone actually records a single lead EKG. So this is kind of like an event monitor, but way cooler and way easier to use because it's just on your iPhone, which never leaves your side. Well, for most of us, that is true. 
For me, it definitely is. And I think it's it's just so much easier to use because I don't know about you, but I will share, I have had to wear a Zio patch and those things are bulky. They're itchy. It's this big sticker that sits on you. And really, you can only wear that thing for like max two weeks. This thing you can carry around on your phone for months and months and months and see if you catch anything. As long as it actually works. It seemed to work. Well, it seemed I'm to work. sure you're going to tell us. I'm going to tell you. The purpose of this study was to review the first year of patients that had gone to this outpatient smartphone ambulatory clinic to basically determine the number of cardiac dysrhythmias that they were able to diagnose and whether or not this intervention was cost-effective. So it included patients 16 to 80. And 80, I was like, wow, you're sending patients home 80 with like near syncope and palpitations? It's kind of ballsy. But anyways, 16 to 80, they presented to the ED with palpitations or near syncope. They had a normal EKG, and they were basically sent for this clinic to try and see if they could find or catch any cardiac dysrhythmia. So in one year, they had about 290 patients that were referred to the clinic and about 237 that were fitted for this device. So what did they find? They actually caught 17 cardiac cases of this presyncope or palpitation. So that's 7% of the patients actually got a cardiac diagnosis. And those were usually either atrial fibrillation, A flutter, or SVT. Now, the vast majority had a non-cardiac diagnosis, and they maybe had just anxiety, or maybe it was just dehydration. Now, of these 230 patients, about 21 of the patients were started on some type of treatment from the clinic. So they were started on either anticoagulation for their AFib, beta blocker. Some of them, if it was thought to be more of like an acid reflux thing, they actually started them on a PPI. And then some of the patients were actually started on DIG. And so the authors do mention that this was a cost-effective device. However, I wasn't really able to find any specific information on the exact dollar amount that was saved. So I think we're just going to have to take their word for it. Yeah. And from a ED perspective, who cares, right? Like it's like if they, you know, get to go not have to go to some clinic or not have somebody interpret some rhythm strip or I don't think it much matters. The cool thing about this for me is this seems like it actually works. It does. You can yeah. buy it on Amazon, right? Like so totally. somebody could buy this on their own. So it's possible this could be coming to an ED near you, right? I don't think we're going to suggest people use it, but they might come in with it, right? They might say, hey, my doc gave me this thing and I put my finger on my iPhone and it tells me I have a dysrhythmia and told me I had AFib, right? And you'll be like, wait, what? what? You know? <laughs> so hopefully now after listening to Britt's really great presentation of it, you'll be like, I have heard of that thing. I've heard of it. I know doctors use it. I know it's not like a investigational device. It is approved, at least in the UK or wherever it was that they did this, you know, like to evaluate this exact thing mm -hmm. as an event monitor. So, you know, you won't take it as like snake oil or something. Yeah. You'll be like, no, this yeah, thing's real legit. and it works and you can buy it. So you didn't just like ask Dr. Google to make a diagnosis. You actually did make a diagnosis. Right. Edit is commentary. This single center cohort study was the first real world clinical implementation of a smartphone based cardiac recorder for evaluation of patients with palpitations discharge from the ER. I see many benefits to using this type of outpatient cardiac monitor. It seems to be cost-effective, and it's a device that can detect cardiac dysrhythmias earlier, allowing treatment to be started in a timely manner. This is something that my cardiologist actually suggested I buy, so I think it should be something that we as ER doctors need to be aware of and might see more of our patients using in the future. 
Quick take. Abstract number 13. Use of adhesive tape to facilitate optimal mask positioning and use in the ED, a randomized control trial. This is by, I'm not sure if it's Petit or Petite at all, from the Annals of Emergency Medicine. This is my only, I think, quick take of the month, and it's not quick because of its coolness factor. It's probably the coolest paper of the month. It's just such a straightforward study. I can do this one justice in just a couple of minutes. But we made it to the tape one. This is the tape one. It wasn't that deep. It was lucky number 13. (laughs) So it has been demonstrated that universal masking of staff and patients is effective in reducing hospital transmission of COVID-19, even when maintaining a safe physical distance is not possible, which it's usually not when you're interacting with the patient, kind of right in their face. But due to a combination of things, mask fatigue, misinformation, just, you know, they don't feel like it. Patients often don't use their masks correctly or consistently. I don't know if you've ever seen this, Britt, where you walk into a patient's room and the mask is just hanging on their chin or on the floor or something like, like that. It's like a chin strap or the best is like when the nose is just hanging over the top. You're like, that, that does, that's yeah, not, still not like doing a, anything. Have you ever seen the blindfold? Oh, that's my favorite yeah, use. That's it's like, kind it's, of brilliant. It's too bright in here. It's brilliant. Just gonna, so, you know, there's a lot of ways to misuse a mask. In this open-label randomized control trial, the authors evaluated the ability of a simple piece of tape over the bridge of the nose to increase adherence with mask wearing in the ED. So they basically just put the mask on. It didn't even have to be a hospital mask. It could be the mask the patient came in with, a cloth mat, whatever it is. They randomized them just getting it sort of sealed on the top of their nose with a piece of tape or not. And that's it. And then they just watched and saw what happened. They randomized 123 ED patients. Most of them were in their early 40s. At one hour, 100% of the intervention group had correct mass placement compared with 69% of controls. Stop it. So that is 100? 100%. So that is a number needed to treat of 3.2. Amazing. Just a piece of tape. Just a piece of tape. The incorrect use, they kind of described that was just sort of funny. 26% had their mask off completely, 26% had the nose exposed, and 37% had the nose and mouth exposed. So it was just, that's the chin strap, The I chin think. strap. <laughs> Some of the patients, like I said, use their own cloth, their surgical mask from home, but having them use a hospital mask instead did not increase the odds of wearing the mask correctly. So that was sort of interesting to me. So even when they came with their own mask from home at an hour, some of them were like, I'm done, unless that tape was there. Now, it's hard to know if it's actually the tape or just the effort of doing something to say, hey, this is important. It's so important. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do this thing here. But who cares? Right. Like, you know, if it gets 100% compliance, what's the difference? It's like a massive difference between groups. Even though this is sort of such a simple, straightforward study, I see why I got an Annals of Emergency Medicine. I think this is awesome. Did they say what kind of tape? Uh, just like the standard hospital, like, paper adhesive. I'm know. attaching that to my stethoscope and I'm just going to start going around and, and I'm just going to tape everyone's face. Tape, tape the face. <laughs> tape the face. Brought to you by Brit. <laughs> Editor's commentary. In this randomized control trial, the authors showed that a simple act of placing a piece of tape on the bridge of the nose to hold a patient's mask in place increased mask compliance at one hour from 69% to 100%. This is a smart, low-cost, easy intervention, and we should start doing this now, particularly if you walk in a room and notice a patient's mask is already off. Quick take. Abstract 14, Quick Cuts, a comparative study of two tools for ring tourniquet removal. This is by Walter et al., published in American Journal of Emergency Medicine. And this one wins the title of best title. Quick Cuts. (laughs) 
Quick cuts. Makes me think it's like a haircut, like a quick cut. Sport clips. Cut it off. All right. And uh, this is one of our quick takes. Oh, uh-huh. quick take and a quick cut. Double quick. Bow chicka brown cow. All right. So what do we have here? This is talking about getting those rings off, those smashed hands, those burned hands. You get a ring tourniquet and they can be really tricky to get off. You got to get them off pretty quick because they really can cause a lot of tissue damage and ischemia. And it's important that we get them off quickly and we get them off safely. So there are a ton of different ways to skin this cat or skin this ring. But um, <laughs> I love it. But this study looks at two of them. So I don't cut off a ton of rings. We don't do it like every shift, but we do do it often enough where I think this is important to talk about. So the one that I probably use the most is kind of that handheld one where you twist the blade and kind of saw it off. But they actually don't talk about either one of those techniques. The other one I'm pretty used to using is the motorized blade to kind of saw off the the ring. the Dremel. The Dremel. The problem with that one, though, is I think we're all pretty familiar with is it can get pretty warm. It gets smoky. It gets a little smoky. But that's how you know it's working. And it gets a little scary. And it's scary with fingers, but we all know that rings get stuck on other places. Touche. A little sensitive areas. So this paper compares the efficacy satisfaction and complications of two standard tools to remove rings. So they look at the motorized diamond disc ring cutter versus a ring cutter attachment on specialized trauma shears. Have you seen those before? Well, that's one of the reasons we included this paper because I'm like, what a what? Like some trauma shears have a ring cutter built into them? I had no idea. I didn't know this either. And I'm actually super excited that I got this paper assigned to me because I was talking about it on shift with some of the residents. And one of the residents was like, oh, yeah, I have those trauma shears. And I'm like, what? Show me. And it's actually really cool. It's just kind of at the base of the trauma shear blades. You see this almost like little fish hook. And that's the part that you slip under the ring and you can just cut through it. I will say, though, that that hook is pretty small. And I could see it being problematic if you had like a really wide, thick ring. But anyway, so I finally got to see one, which was very exciting. So this was a pilot study. They took 30 volunteers. Those volunteers were EM residents, PAs, and EM attendings. Each of the volunteers had two rings put on their hands, and they were removed by other volunteers using the trauma shears and that kind of motorized cutting device. And the primary outcome was to just kind of figure out which one did it faster. And then the secondary outcomes that they looked at was if one of the methods had higher rates of participant satisfaction and complications. So What did people like and did one of the devices have more complications than the other? So what did they find? They found that by far and away, the trauma shear cutter got the ring off much faster. Like we're talking seven seconds for the trauma shears versus like 67 seconds for the motorized cutter. So big time difference. User satisfaction, again, across the board, everybody seemed to really like those trauma shears compared to the motorized device. And in terms of patient discomfort, which is important, there was no discomfort rated for the trauma shears. And, you know, the thing that was most commented on was that motorized device, it gets a little warm. It gets the tissue a little smoky and can be a little scary. So I think this is, you know, this is really interesting. It's something that we come across in our practice a couple times a year. And I'm, I'm kind of interested in going on Amazon and buying these trauma shears. Yeah, I think for me... It is cool, and I just didn't know this thing existed, but I'm actually going to temper my enthusiasm for this one. 
Mainly because I just don't know in a non-blinded pilot like this if it's not like Dr. Tramashir who's running the whole study. If everybody was kind of in on the game and they're like, hey, we just got these cool new things. We want to publish something that says they work. Uh, You know, you just don't really know. The fact that it's been around forever and I've never heard of it also makes me like a little skeptical. That being said, I do want to see it and I do want to try it. They look pretty cool. And the resident that had them said they worked pretty well. But okay, this is well, N of one. I'll t- but I'll take that as a real <laughs> N of one because, like you said, these weren't jammed on rings. These were like volunteers with yeah. just regular rings put on. So exactly. If it worked in a real patient. Even that N of one, Britt, now I'm paying even more attention. Hey, yo. Editor's commentary. This pilot study of 30 hospital volunteers found that the ring cutter on trauma shears removed rings more quickly and with higher participant satisfaction when compared to a motorized device. The motorized ring cutters have traditionally kind of been one of our go-tos, but that little motor can get a little scary, especially next to sensitive tissue, and it gets pretty warm. So although this is a very small study, and again on healthy volunteers that are non-injured patients, I think it might be worth buying a pair of these trauma shears with the ring cutters and trying them out on my next patient. Abstract number 15. A randomized controlled trial of oxycodone acetaminophen versus acetaminophen alone for ED patients with musculoskeletal pain refractory to ibuprofen. And this is by Friedman et al. from Academic Emergency Medicine. So the value of opioids in patients with acute musculoskeletal pain is for some reason a huge source of controversy among ED providers. And I think the basis for that controversy comes from the fact that there have been several head-to-head trials that suggest that opioids have no value over NSAIDs or NSAIDs combined with acetaminophen. The issue is that this just doesn't seem to match with everyone's clinical practice, where, you know, you feel like your you know, bone is busted in half, and sometimes a Norco is just what you need, even though the evidence seems to say it doesn't really work any better. So it's uncomfortable, the situation. <laughs> the major criticism of these studies is that the inclusion criteria were just too broad. Mm. It was too big a breadth of patients, some who probably couldn't benefit from, you know, the opioid. And they may have missed a subset of patients that would benefit if one really existed. Okay, maybe if you include a busted femur with like a little bit of low back pain, that's not really fair. But that's what the studies do. So here they're saying, okay, maybe there's a group. So the authors of this particular study focused their attention on one particular subset of patients, those with acute pain who did not get sufficient relief one hour after administration of ibuprofen 600 milligrams PO. So this was a two-stage double-blended randomized trial from two urban EDs. So in stage one, everybody got the ibuprofen, 600 milligrams, open label, everybody knew what they got. And then at the hour point, They said, doing okay, or do you need more pain medicine? And those who said they needed more pain medicine then were randomized in a blinded fashion to getting either 10 milligrams of oxycodone with acetaminophen 650 or acetaminophen 650 alone. The primary outcome of interest was change in pain score two hours after this medication ingestion, so after the second round of the second stage of the trial. They enrolled almost 400 patients. About a third had upper extremity pain, 50% with lower extremity pain, and about 15% with neck or back pain. The median initial pain scores, this is before stage one, was 8.5. 
So that's high. That's really high. Yeah. And the median duration of pain was a day. So this was people who hurt themselves today, for the most part, who were in a lot of pain. Of the 400 patients, and this is kind of interesting finding number one, 40% of them reported insufficient relief of pain and then were randomized in stage two. And that means 60%, even those who had 8.5 pain, did fine with just the NSAID. So I think that's a really nice take home that they don't really emphasize enough in this that's paper. That's huge. That's a lot of patients. Yeah, just more than ibuprofen, half. see you later. That, that's it. So of the 154 randomized patients, pain relief was higher in the opioid group. A drop of four versus a drop of 2.9. Now, more patients in the acetaminophen-only group also failed to achieve a minimum clinically important difference on the 1 to 10 scale, right? So in research world, we say it needs to drop by 1.3, right, or 13 millimeters on the scale. And that was 32% had at least that drop in the opioid group versus 14% in the acetaminophen-only group. Now, on the flip side, more patients in the opioid arm reported adverse events, 34% versus 9% with the majority of these being drowsiness in 17 patients, dizziness in six, and nausea in six. So in the end, it's kind of a mixed bag, right? And I think this is probably going to be one of those papers that strengthens whatever position you held going into this discussion. Providers who believe opioids do work for this cohort, you tried NSAIDs, you try to be a good steward, and they're like, I'm still having seven out of 10 pain, and you want to give them an opioid, will say, hey, let's focus on the improved pain relief in the opioid arm. And those who believe have no value will point out that the absolute between-group difference was 1.1. And while that is statistically significant difference, it is of marginal clinical significance, and the number needed to harm is 4. So limitations for this paper include, for me, a more nuanced look at pain relief. And this is an issue I have with a lot of these papers, right? Does the pain drop faster? Does it last longer? Does it encourage a quicker ED discharge? You know, these are kinds of questions that would impact my decision of what to give. They have no comment on the need for further rescue medications. Okay, they still needed more meds after the opioids or some crossed over to the opioid group. They didn't really mention that. And for me, I don't know what you think, Britt. I feel like there's questionable doses in pretty much all the stages, right? 600 milligrams of ibuprofen up front, like I don't know that has any more analgesic efficacy over 400, but you know, that is a little bit debatable. But then when they get randomized, they get randomized to oxycodone 10 with 650 of acetaminophen, which is a lot. We usually give, you know, like five. Uh, we're giving Norco, but we give five right. or acetaminophen 650. And if somebody's really in six out of 10 pain, I'm giving a gram. Right. So I kind of feel like they give a little more opioid than I would give and a little less acetaminophen. And changing these could dramatically alter their findings, particularly the side effects, because they're kind of focused on this, like, well, they got really dizzy and drowsy and stuff. Oh, what if you'd given them five? Like you said, Britt, like maybe that would change things. So I don't know. They didn't really say why they chose the doses they did. Maybe that's just sort of what they do in the ED where this was done. But I wish it had been a little more like the doses I do. Right. It was either like, here's like a sprinkle of Tylenol or like, well, bam, here's your opioid. And so it's like very extreme ends of the spectrum, I feel like. Yeah. So it's, you know, that is a big limitation of this paper. But if you're interested in this topic, I think it's probably worth knowing everything that comes out in the literature, particularly since this one was academic EM. Editor's commentary. In this randomized trial of adults in the ED with acute musculoskeletal pain, resistant to 600 milligrams of ibuprofen, 
patients in the opioid arm got slightly higher pain relief at the expense of increased side effects. I have some issues with dosing choices that might have impacted their findings. Unfortunately, this paper doesn't elucidate the patient group that might clearly benefit from opioids in the ED and will likely strengthen however you felt about this topic before we had our discussion. Abstract 16, HIV post-exposure prophylaxis in the emergency department. An updated assessment and opportunities for HIV prevention identified. This is by O'Connell et al., published in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. Antiviral therapy is super effective and helps people with HIV live longer, decreases the risk of transmission, but unfortunately, about 63% of HIV-positive individuals are either undiagnosed or don't have access to HIV care and treatment. So many new HIV diagnoses occur disproportionately in underserved patient populations that have little access to medical care, and the ED acts as the safety net for a lot of these patients. So in order to kind of eradicate HIV, not only do we need to focus on the diagnosis and treatment of new infections, but we really need to focus on prevention. For patients without health insurance, this frequently is happening in the emergency room. It turns out that we as ER doctors really don't offer non-occupational PEP as often as we should. And this is really a missed opportunity to potentially prevent the spread of HIV. So in this paper, they used an anonymous survey, and they wanted to kind of quantify ED practitioners' knowledge of HIV non-occupational PEP, their confidence in prescribing non-occupational PEP, and self-reports of the number of prescriptions that providers had given in the last 12 months. So over four months, this anonymous survey was distributed. ED attendings took it, residents, and PAs. It basically was distributed across five hospitals and two freestanding ERs. And I think it's important to point out that these hospitals were a mix of both urban and suburban and rural EDs. But in this general area, this community had a higher prevalence of HIV than the national average. So what did they find in the study? About 52 providers completed the study, and 89% of the providers that you know, completed the study said that they believed it was their responsibility to provide HIV non-occupational PEP in the ED. But only 25% had actually given a prescription in the last year. And they also found that only 45 providers reported that they felt comfortable in actually prescribing the medication, giving the correct drug regimen, and identifying who really needed this medication. Part of the survey also had kind of a knowledge-based question section on just like, what do you know about HIV and non-occupational PEP? What about side effects? Who should get it? What do you actually know? And do people know much? It turns out they didn't score very well. The average score was a 49%. And I've got to be honest that I think that kind of makes sense because I think that PEP and HIV treatment isn't something that's really emphasized in med school or our ER training. So it's not surprising that they scored pretty bad on these kind of knowledge-based questions. Now, in terms of any barriers reported to prescribing this medication, there are a lot of barriers identified. And I think, at least for me, I can relate to some of them. That, you know, people identified the time just sitting down with the patient and discussing the medication and the risks and benefits and their risk of getting HIV. They thought that just time was a barrier. They also felt that getting the patient follow-up, appropriate follow-up with ID or primary care was also a barrier. 
And I think that that really relates to my practice is in some of the hospitals that I work at, we don't have a great system in place for getting these patients the appropriate follow-up that they need. Yeah, I think this is a great paper. And obviously, HIV is a massive public health issue that, you know, like you said, totally appropriately, we are the safety net for these patients. And so, you know, my opinion on this is pretty strong. I'm like, if you don't feel comfortable, get over yourself and get comfortable, right? I think that the truth of the matter is the meds are no different, right? If you've given meds for post-exposure prophylaxis from a needle stick or something like that, saying you don't know what the meds are or something like that is just not a valid excuse, right? It's the same triple regimen. It's exactly the same thing. My gut feeling is, is just that there's something deeper. There's something where we're like, boy, this feels out of our comfort zone. This is like, you know, it, and, you know, I just sort of feel like we'll get in the comfort zone. Then. Yeah. You know, this is something that could impact this patient for life. We have a treatment that can prevent it. And if you don't know a lot about it and you feel uncomfortable, just learn. This is no different than like bup coming up now. And people, oh, I'm just not sure. If we're supposed, I don't know if we're supposed to do that. People are learning, right? right? Like people are learning. We're making it easier to prescribe. This just sort of has to be made a focus, you know? And I think what's most terrifying about it is this is a convenient sample of patients, and probably this represents a best-case scenario that right. 25% of people say they have prescribed it. Because my gut feeling is people probably saw the title, and they're like, oh, boy, I don't want to, <laughs> like, even, I'm too uncomfortable to even talk about this. I've never done it. So they didn't even participate. Right. So probably the real number, even in this high-need area, like you said, is lower than what they present here. So, you know, I get it. I'm not trying to say, like, this should be easy. I know I'm coming off a little strong about it. It is hard. It is hard to make a cultural change. It's hard to sort of think about the way you practice a little bit differently. But if we can all agree, like you said at the beginning, this is a public health problem and we have a potential solution, like, in our pocket, we should think about learning how to use it. And maybe it's just thinking about it and hearing, like, the abstract that represented that will sort of, like, light a spark, light a match and get people to learn and get over whatever your personal barriers are. And I feel like we so easily, without even thinking about it, treat gonorrhea and chlamydia. Like, no problem. Like, you've got a little burning, you got a little discharge, you're getting ceftriaxin and doxy. Like, not a question. But sometimes not all of us make that extra leap to think, well, if you got gonorrhea and chlamydia, there's actually probably a likelihood that we need to also be thinking about HIV prophylaxis. Yeah, and I want to make another point, which is, you know, I've heard people say, Barry, well, I don't have access to a quick HIV test, you know, just so you know, official recommendations on this topic say you should get an HIV test. But if you don't have access to a rapid HIV test, that should not prohibit you from starting the meds in a very high-risk, non-occupational exposure. Editor's commentary. Using an anonymous survey, the authors found that most providers felt that they should provide non-occupational PEP, but very few actually did. The ER serves some of the most vulnerable patient populations, and providing PEP is an important part of our practice as ER doctors. I believe that this study points out the need for better universal hospital protocols regarding HIV testing, non-occupational PEP prescriptions, patient follow-up, and provider education so that more ED docs feel comfortable prescribing this really important medication. Abstract number 17, role of thoracic and abdominal tomography in identifying a potential source of infection in patients with acute fever of unknown focus. This is by Cert et al. from the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. 
So fever is one of the most common presenting symptoms in an ED, and identifying the source is important to make sure that we deliver the most appropriate treatment and the most focused treatment. So we're not just giving broad-spectrum antibiotics to everybody. We want to treat what they have, if they have something. But what if you don't find a source? Does CT have a role? Is sort of what they're asking here, and I think this is what is being referred to by a lot of my residents as the medical pan scan. Ooh, the pan scan. Which is a term that I feel like is new in the last couple years. And I feel like I don't love it. No me gusta. I feel like I don't love it. So the authors of this paper conduct a retrospective chart review of patients from a single emergency department, adult patients with documented fever that got thorax, I think, and or abdomen CT imaging. Acute fever of unknown origin was defined as the absence of history or physical exam finding that could explain the possible cause of fever, the absence of nonspecific symptoms like a runny nose, cough, belly pain, diarrhea, burning, stuff like that, normal values or parameters that would suggest an infection like the UA, bacteria, pyuria, nitrites, and absence of an infiltrate on chest x-ray. So, but this is retrospective. This is not prospective. These are people going back and looking at these charts, looking for those things. Of almost about just over 9,000 patients with fever, about a third of those, 3,735, had all the data elements they needed for chart review. So two-thirds were excluded right off the bat because some things weren't documented, including having gotten a CT. I think that part is a little bit hard to follow. Of those, 3,562 had a source found in the workup, leaving 173 cases of what they're calling fever of unknown origin out of an initial starting point of 10,000. So it's not a lot here. It's not actually. a ton. Of these, of these 173, a source of infection was found by the CT in a third of the cases. They ran a multivariable logistic regression to see if there were any clear differences between the patients that had a positive CT compared with those that did not, and report age over 65 years, presence of a comorbidity, and elevated procalcitonin to be associated with positive CT. But I have very significant concerns that they evaluated too many variables. This is only 173 patients or whatever it is. I think they overfit their model. They really looked at a lot of stuff here. They end up concluding that the presence of one of these three variables in a patient with fever of unknown origin should make you think about getting a CT. And they do a nice job sort of curbing the strength of this recommendation. There's a lot of maybe, should, considers, and stuff like that. I have some serious issues with the paper that make me think that the recommendation should not be followed at all. The main one is that Even if we assume for a second, which is a huge leap of faith, that the chart review was spot on, that there were no missed findings, no incorrect categorization of patients, no bias in the review process or people saw what they wanted to see, like it was perfect. They found all the data elements. They actually recorded everything correctly. Just so you know, no chart review is ever (laughs) like that. But even if we give them all the credit in the world, this is not a trial. So at the end of the day, the cohort they're reporting on, which is their denominator, right? They're saying it's 173, and so the positive is a third, and they're calling it patients with fever of unknown origin, but it's just not. It's patients with fever of unknown origin, so they say, who the provider had already decided was getting a CT. 
right? And those are just fundamentally totally different. And I think they misspeak throughout the whole thing saying those are patients of FUO. They're not. They're patients with FUO who are getting a CT already. You're already concerned that there might be something in the belly. Something's leading you to thinking that. That's exactly right. And this is a subtle difference, which they don't mention at all in the paper, but I think completely changes the conclusion. In fact, to a good one, right? Because it's like, okay, a third of them had a diagnosis on CT. A third? Seriously? There's no way they had no clinical suspicion Mm -hmm. they were going to find something on a CT. Like, if you looked at all of your CTs as a provider, there's no way a third of them are positive. Well, and did they say what they found? Did anything like change management drastically? Yeah. Well, again, they found, they don't give the exact, you know, we found appy and this and this and the other thing, but they found something that was an infection that required antibiotics. Okay. Now, this is retrospective, so they can't say if it changed management, right? Maybe they already were getting the right antibiotics before Mm -hmm. that. We have no clue. Mm -hmm. But what I know is that although they say that these are patients with fever of unknown origin, they're not. Edit this commentary. In this retrospective chart review study, the authors conclude that they identified three factors that can help decide on CT use for patients with fever with no clinical clues. But as this is a chart review study, there simply is no way to know that the patients actually had no clinical clues that precipitated a CT. A positive CT rate of over 30% sure makes me feel like they did. The bottom line is we can't apply their findings to a patient with true fever of unknown origin. Quick take. Abstract 18. What is the efficacy of initial therapies for bleeding from esophageal varices in adult patients with cirrhosis? This is by Britt Long et al., published in Annals of Emergency Medicine. Now, this is a commentary of a recent meta-analysis, so it's going to be one of our quick takes, and I think we're going to be able to cover it pretty quick. So, mortality rate of acute esophageal varicine bleeds are, it's pretty high, I mean, somewhere between 15 and 30%. And in the ER, most of our options to control this type of bleeding include something like a somatostatin like octreotide, vasopressin, balloon tamponade, and then calling your GI consult for a scope and sclerotherapy. Now, there is also, if you have available at your facility, the option for maybe IR and a TIPS procedure. So in this meta-analysis, they looked at 52 different trials and included over 4,000 patients, so lots of patients, and they were all randomized controlled trials of adults with acute bleeding from esophageal varices due to liver cirrhosis. And they included some studies that also looked at patients with not only esophageal varices, but gastric varices as well. They excluded trials where the gastric varices were kind of the target of the therapy. They also excluded trials where any of the patients had liver transplants. So what they found was that the mortality was higher in patients who were treated with just a somatostatin or just a vasopressin alone compared to patients who got sclerotherapy alone. They also found that sclerotherapy plus a somatostatin analog, so sclerotherapy plus an octreotide, did not seem to reduce mortality, but did seem to reduce rate of rebleed. Now, there were more serious events reported in the patients who got balloon tamponade plus sclerotherapy compared to patients who just got sclerotherapy alone. 
But I'm going to make an assumption here that if you got balloon tamponade and sclerotherapy, you were probably really freaking sick and just were probably going to have a higher mortality rate regardless and more serious events. I think there are a handful of limitations to this meta-analysis. One is that the authors even say that there was a risk of bias. The risk of bias was very high for all of the included trials, which made it difficult or basically they weren't able to rank effectiveness of these therapies. And many of the papers that were included in the meta-analysis were kind of identified as being poor quality of evidence. Very few studies in this meta-analysis were high-quality trials. And really, I mean, your meta-analysis is only as good as the studies included in it. So I think, you know, variceal bleeds are scary. These patients are sick. Their mortality is high. And for me, I, well, you kind of just throw the kitchen sink at them. They're going to get a noctreotide. They're going to get scler- And we're going to call GI. We're going to get out the balloon tamponade. We're going to do blood products. And I think this is an interesting meta-analysis, but I think, you know, given what we know about how sick these patients are, you're going to kind of do everything. Editor's commentary. The results from this meta-analysis on therapies for bleeding from esophageal varices suggest that sclerotherapy plus a somatostatin analog did not seem to reduce mortality, but did seem to reduce rate of rebleed compared to sclerotherapy alone. These patients are always scary and they're very sick. And I feel like you're going to throw the kitchen sink at a cirrhotic patient with a massive esophageal bleed. They're going to get octreotide, they're going to get blood products, and you're definitely going to consult GI. I can't imagine being in a position where I only gave octreotide and didn't consult GI for sclerotherapy. House of Medicine. Abstract number 19. Racial and ethnic disparities in physical restraint use for pediatric patients in the ED. This is by Nash et al. from JAMA Pediatrics. So we recently, within the last two or three months, I think, covered a paper showing a strong association between being black and receiving physical restraints among ED patients even after controlling for multiple potential markers of disease severity. Now, although a much more rare event, in this research letter, and our good friend and very bright colleague Arjun Venkatesh is an author on this, the authors aim to see if the same relationship exists among pediatric patients. So this is a cross-sectional study of kids aged 0 to 16 seen at 11 emergency departments in a single New England healthcare system. They examine the association between physical restraints and race and ethnicity using a generalized linear multivariable mixed model which could control for relevant covariates, much like in the adult study. Of over half a million visits, 532 or 0.1% were associated with a physical restraint order. They found black patients were more likely to receive physical restraints compared with white patients, even after controlling for all relevant covariates with an adjusted odds ratio of 1.8. There was no difference in restraint use between visits for Hispanic and white patients. So I think their findings leave us with the same issues to deal with as the adult paper on this topic. Is this the truth? Which one is right? That black patients 
actually are more dangerous than white patients, even after adjusting for prior history of mental health, taking psychotropic medications, things like that, and so they need to be restrained more? Or is the truth that providers are just more scared of black patients and thus have a lower threshold for using restraints? Or is the truth something in between or something else entirely? The authors of this paper take a very brave stand, actually. They're more forceful than they were in the other paper and say that their findings, quote, reflect racism at multiple levels within and beyond the emergency care continuum, community, emergency medical services, and the ED. So they just get out there and say it, you know, and I got to say, I'm really proud of them for doing so. It doesn't surprise me. You know, these authors are really bright, very, very well-educated, sophisticated researchers who deal with these public health issues, and they just lay it on the table. But I think that regardless of how you feel about the topic or how you feel about this paper, the facts you can't disagree with. So the paper should at least make you stop, think, and reflect for a minute on a really, really important topic. Edit this commentary. In this well-conducted study from a New England healthcare system, the authors found an association between being black and receiving physical restraints among pediatric ED patients even after controlling for relevant covariates. This is a second paper in several months to show the same finding and should serve as a catalyst for us to think about black patients and restraint use in our own practice. Abstract 20. Association of limited English proficiency and increased pediatric emergency department revisits. This is by Portillo et al and published in the Academic Emergency Medicine Journal. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna stop you right there because I can't believe this happened on the last paper. Mike, on every recording, oh, no, what I do? always makes fun of me. No, it's not a no-no. You're on my side on this one. Oh God, and I what like I do? it, sort of. So Mike always makes fun of me because for many years, we've been doing this for like 10 years together on different programs. I've always said the Academic Emergency Medicine. <laughs> and... He always points out that it's academic emergency medicine. And it was a nice little banter between us <laughs> until, you know, Chris Carter, who is one of the editors of Academic Emergency Medicine, wrote us a note going, hey, Sanjay, you're wrong on this one. Oh. It's not the academic. And I know it's not. <laughs> but as I have pointed out to him on prior recordings, I just like the way it stands. Like, I'm like one of the the Ohio State people. I'm like, I'm, I'm into, <laughs> I, I like the use of the word the, and he just used it. So, Mike... I think the debate is back on the table. Uh, all right. All right. Take it away. Take it away. All right. Well, I mean, first of all, we made it to the end. We Woo-hoo! made it. We're not there yet. <laughs> We're almost done. We're almost done. All right. So let's talk about this paper. This is effective communication. I think we can all agree is really an important part of providing high quality medical care. And previous studies show that pediatric patients from limited English proficiency families have a higher rate of hospitalization, longer hospital stays, and even after discharge, more incidence of medication dosing errors. So the primary outcome of this study was to try and examine the association of limited English proficiency and pediatric ED revisits within 72 hours. So how did they do this? This is a retrospective cross-sectional study of pediatric patients age 0 to 21 years of age, and they were all evaluated in an urban tertiary care academic pediatric ED. 
Now, in this ED, they actually have a lot of interpreter services available. They have 24-7 interpretation via tablet and telephone. They also have in-person, like in-hospital interpreters, 9 a.m. to midnight for both Spanish and Arabic. So they had a lot of resources. Now, included in this study was about 63,000 pediatric patients. And they had to define limited English proficiency, and they did this by simply if the patient had documented that English was not their preferred language, they were then defined as having limited English proficiency. It's not a perfect system, but I think in a retrospective study, it's probably the best we have. So out of these 63,000 patients that were initially discharged from the ED and included in the study, 80% were identified as being English proficient and 20% were identified as having limited English proficiency. Now, the most common preferred languages other than English was Spanish, and that was the vast majority of the limited English proficiency patients. And then about 10%, there was a handful of Arabic, Portuguese, Chinese, Creole-speaking patients. So what they found was the rate of ED visits, kind of those bounce-back revisits, after the initial discharge was 4.5 per 100 visits for limited English proficiency patients and 3.5 per 100 initial visits for English proficient patients. So you see a little bit of a higher number of bounce back revisits in 72 hours for limited English proficiency patients. But I think it's actually kind of important to break down what that limited English proficiency group looked like. So when you take the limited English proficiency bounce backs, they found that 5.5 out of 100 were non-Spanish speaking. So these were the Arabic, the Creole, the Chinese, other than Spanish. 5.5 per 100 bounce back visits versus 3.9 per 100 for Spanish speaking patients. And I think, you know, I can't really say why this happened, but my assumption would be that The ER had a lot of interpreter services for Spanish, and frequently we have a lot more discharge paperwork in Spanish than in other languages. So I'm assuming maybe this bounce back number was a little bit lower because they had a few more resources specifically for Spanish speakers. Now, there was a lot of analysis on kind of whether or not an interpreter was used for the patient or what other barriers could have been present or Were there discharge instructions provided in the preferred language? And unfortunately, there was incomplete data on these specific questions, which really limited the analysis. So I'm not really sure. But I think, you know, this paper is consistent with previous studies that patients with limited English proficiency do seem to have a little bit of a higher bounce back visit to the ED. Yeah, I think your analysis on this one is really great, Britt. I really do. And I, I totally agree with your point about like this sort of proxy for whether or not they speak English and this, you know, where they sort of tick the box as limited English proficiency is not perfect, but it's probably the best we have. But I think the fact that what you pointed out about the fact that when they really broke it down, the Spanish speaking patients looked more like the fluent in English patients in terms of their bounce back rates, that just really highlights the need for appropriate discharge services and things like that for uh, because they probably like you said they probably had it for Spanish it's like we all work in EDs we know that you know it's not that challenging to find someone in the department who speaks Spanish or a nurse or whatever but find somebody who speaks you know creole or something like that could be incredibly difficult so i think that really highlights their point of you know if probably those people weren't getting adequate discharge instructions or explanation of their you know post care plan or etc 
and they came back because of it, actually at a higher clip than when you look at the whole cohort of patients with limited English proficiency. So I really think it does point to a nice kind of focus. Say like, hey, we got to be serious about this, and we got to be most serious in the people who are at the most at risk, and those are probably the ones that we have very little ability to communicate with at all. You know, I left out one thing that's probably important to mention as well. In terms of those kids that kind of bounce back to the ED within 72 hours, when you compared the admission rate for those kids that came back, the admission rate was the same between limited English proficiency and English proficiency. So they were bouncing back more often if they had limited English, but they weren't necessarily getting admitted to the hospital more frequently. So you're making a leap of faith saying maybe it's because they didn't understand what they were supposed to do. It's an assumption. It's a fair one. Editor's commentary. In this retrospective cross-sectional study, the authors found that limited English proficiency was associated with increased rates of ED repeat visits within 72 hours of initial visit. I think this study really highlights the point that language has a potential impact on the rate of repeat ED visits and overall quality of care. And therefore, we should have systemic-wide improvements to provide effective communication and discharge information to all our patients. Welcome to the December 2021 EMA Ultra Summary. I'm Jess Monis, and I would love to welcome back Jenny Beck Esme. Jenny, I missed you. Yay! Hey, I'm back. I missed you too, Jess. It's good to be here. Yeah. So I want to see how are you, and is it okay to let folks know why you are out? Sure. First of all, I am great. And yes, why don't you spill the beans, Jess? Jenny had a baby. Jenny had a baby. <laughs> I had a baby. She's adorable. I'm a very happy new mom. Oh, and what's her name? Her name is Lilith. Oh, so sweet. Yeah. And I have to tell you, email listeners, this baby is so cute. I'm talking <laughs> Gerber baby here. Seriously, oh. adorable. So Aaron kept your seat warm while you were gone, but it is Thank so- you, Aaron. Yeah, it was so nice, but it's so good to have you back. You ready to close the year out with an EMA bang? Let's do it. All right. Paper number one. Effective intravenous fluid treatment with a balanced solution versus 0.9% saline solution on mortality in critically ill patients. The basics randomized clinical trial. Normal saline, balanced fluids, normal saline. Not long ago, normal saline was flowing like water. Then the SMART and SALTED trials came out, and many of us switched to LR, myself included. In this next installment in the saga, we reviewed the basics. Balanced solutions in intensive care study, aka, why you gotta be so basic. <laughs> this was a huge, <laughs> randomized control, double-blind study with over 10,000 participants. Patients admitted to the ICU were either given normal saline or plasmolite. Jenny, you ready for the results? I'm ready. No statistically significant difference was found in 90-day mortality. <sighs> Mind blown. Mind blown. Out of the 19 secondary outcomes, one worth mentioning is that in traumatic brain injury patients, mortality was 10% lower with normal saline, which is certainly hypothesis generating. The PLUSH trial is currently underway in New Zealand and Australia and will hopefully shed further light on this topic. You can listen to Sanjay for more details on the study, 
And if you want to get real nerdy, Aaron Skolnick and Ken Milne discuss this paper in great detail in October's Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Love you, Ken. You too, Aaron. Paper number two, Rapid Agitation Control with Ketamine in the Emergency Department, a Blinded, Randomized, Controlled Trial. This study compares 5 mg per kg of ketamine to the tried-and-true 5 mg of haloperidol with 5 mg of midazolam combination for controlling acute agitation. Agitation was measured with the RAS scale and was recorded every 5 minutes until a score of 1 was reached or 30 minutes elapsed. They found, I'm going to give you some details here because I find sedation of agitation really, really interesting. So they found the median time to sedation for the Haldol-Midazlam group was 14.7 minutes, and the median time to sedation in the ketamine group was 5.8 minutes, so significantly less. Unfortunately, however, the study was stopped early due to COVID, so it was ultimately underpowered. That being said, I think a lot of folks are using ketamine for agitation and really liking it. One of those, as every listener probably knows, is Dr. Ruben Strayer. So for more on his thoughts, check out the Strayerism segment on agitation mitigation from the June 2017 MRAP. Ketamine, good for all that ails you. (laughs) Paper number three, inhaled budesonide for COVID-19 in people at high risk of complications in the community in the UK, principle, a randomized control open label adaptive platform trial. This paper looked at the use of inhaled corticosteroid budesonide in higher-risk patients with COVID. It was a multi-center, open-label, non-blinded, non-placebo-controlled randomized trial. Patients were either 65-plus or 50 and older with comorbidities. They were sick but not hospitalized. They found that patients that used budesonide felt better sooner, with time to self-reported recovery almost three days earlier in the treatment arm. The rate of hospitalization or death was 2% less with budesonide, but this did not meet the superiority threshold. Also, at the time of this study, only about 1% of the population received the COVID vaccine. So does this hold true in vaccinated patients? Not sure, but it seems like it's pretty low harm, and giving a script for this may make patients feel like we're doing something for them. Gotta make them feel like we're doing something. <laughs> exactly. Here is your script for Tylenol and ibuprofen. Oh, love doing that. Love it. Want to hear a little bit more about ketamine? Yeah, more for ketamine. All right. <laughs> Paper number four, ketamine administration for acute painful sickle cell crisis. This is a randomized control trial comparing ketamine to morphine for controlling pain in patients with sickle cell disease who are coming in with pain that's due to a vaso-occlusive crisis. Patients were randomized to receive either ketamine at 0.3 milligrams per kilogram mixed into a 100 milliliter bag of normal saline and then infused over 30 minutes or morphine at a dose of 0.1 mg per kg, again, mixed in to saline and infused. And then pain scores were recorded every 30 minutes for a total of three hours. So we only know about three hours worth of pain. They found that pain scores were similar in the two groups but that patients in the ketamine group required less additional opioids than those in the morphine group. Given the obvious dangers of opioids, particularly in a patient population that has frequent pain episodes and requires these heavy-duty analgesics, ketamine may be a promising alternative. It really is good for all that ails you. (laughs) Right, exactly. Everyone loves ketamine. Paper number five. 
Serum sodium concentration and mental status in children with diabetic ketoacidosis. In prior retrospective studies, associations were found between drops in sodium levels during DKA and cerebral edema. This study was a secondary analysis of the prospectively collected PCARN data and did not find this to be the case. The authors compared kids with declines in sodium concentrations to those with stable values. They found that drops in sodium were associated with higher initial sodium and chloride levels in patients with known diabetes and, not surprisingly, treatment with one-half normal saline. Regarding altered mental status and cerebral injury, similar between groups, with no correlation to the sodium drop. This should at least make us feel a bit more comfortable with the fluids we give to resuscitate these kids. For more on pediatric DKA, check out MRAP's Pediatric Pearls from July of this year. That does make me feel more comfortable. It's one of those areas that we're always still so nervous about, even though the data really tells us it's probably fine <laughs> to be giving these fluids. I totally agree, but we're all terrified, right? Yeah, we're like, you don't we're wanna, terrified. You don't want to be the one person who does it wrong and then somehow hurts a child, of course. Paper number six, pre-hospital narrow pulse pressure predicts need for resuscitative thoracotomy and emergent intervention after trauma. This is a single-center retrospective observational study that reviewed nearly 40,000 trauma patient charts over a 12-year period. The authors wanted to look at patients that had a narrow pulse pressure in the pre-hospital setting and figure out if that narrow pulse pressure could predict severe traumatic injuries and the need for emergency interventions. They divided the patients into three groups. They had those that were normotensive but had a narrow pulse pressure, those that were frankly hypotensive, and then those that were normotensive with a normal pulse pressure. For most of the bad outcomes you'd expect, things like higher injury severity scores, cardiac arrests, thoracotomies, trauma interventions, and of course mortality, these occurred most often, as you'd expect, in the patients who were frankly hypotensive. Least often in the normotensive normal pulse pressure group and the normotensive narrow pulse pressure group fell right in the middle. They found that this narrow pulse pressure was independently associated with the need for trauma interventions, need specifically for resuscitative thoracotomies, and the need for any other kind of emergent intervention. So it certainly seems like this vital sign measure may be worth calculating and adding to our trauma team activation guidelines. Okay, paper number seven. The association between end tidal CO2 and return of spontaneous circulation after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest with pulseless electrical activity. End tidal CO2 has many uses. You can hear about it in the critical care mailbag from this past July. One of the suggested uses has been as a prognostic indicator in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. This paper looked at the delta value in PEA arrests to see if it can predict the return of spontaneous circulation. The delta was calculated based on the initial value after intubation and the last value taken either prior to ROSC or the code being called. The authors found that a delta greater than 20 had a specificity of about 95% for ROSC. Sounds good, but Sanjay gets into why the data and analysis in this study was a bit messy. Additionally, while they do report ROSC, what I want to know is how does this relate to survival and neurologic outcomes? Seems easy enough, so I'm willing to give it a try, but I would love a little more data. Absolutely. ROSC is interesting, but it's not actually a patient-centered outcome, right? We want to know for the patients and their families, how are these patients going to do 
after Rosk, you know? Exactly. So you're absolutely yes. right. Right. Like, is grandma going to walk out of the hospital and, and right. talk to me again? Yeah. Right. Exactly. That's what really matters. Paper number eight, Interrater Agreement and Reliability of Burn Size Estimations Between Emergency Physicians and Burn Unit. Anyone who has recently studied for their boards or their research exams remembers memorizing various ways to calculate the body surface area involved in burns, things to estimate, things to calculate. We care about this, of course, because it directly relates to the volume of fluids we need to resuscitate a burn patient. Previous studies have shown that ED doctors tend to overestimate the total body surface area, which can result in over-resuscitation and ultimately can increase mortality. Not great. But these older studies are usually comparing ED docs who have to transfer their patients to a burn center to the accepting burn doctor. In this paper, they decided to look at the inter-rater reliability of the total body surface area estimation by academic emergency physicians practicing in an institution that has a burn unit and the estimation that was made by the burn unit physician. And they found that there was better agreement and reliability between the ED and the burn unit than was found in previous studies. It's hard to know what this really means. These are physicians in an institution with a burn unit, so perhaps they're seeing more burns. It's also possible that the two physicians communicated about the size of the burn in a way that influenced their estimation, but wasn't actually shown in the chart. Regardless, this paper is a very good reminder that accuracy in this calculation is important. If you want to brush up on severe burn management, check out this segment in the April 2016 MRAP. Yeah, and I have to agree with that. You know, it's, it was retrospective. So, yeah. you know, for instance, I mean, has there ever been a time that I'm like, oh, how big was that wound? And then you go and you like, check the person you had to consult for it for whatever reason. And they're like seven centimeters. And you're like, yes, I recall it was, you know, seven centimeters. Yeah. So it's really hard to say. You know, I tend to think that emergency physicians are more conservative. Mm -hmm. We've certainly seen that with things like the heart score, right? Like we tend to go maybe a little bit more on the heart score, cardiologists a little bit less. You know, I think that's just kind of the nature that we practice, right? It's always worst case scenario. So right. exactly, exactly. So we would rather probably overestimate and over-resuscitate a little bit than, oh my God, underestimate. Especially because, you know, things like the total body surface area affects whether you're even going to be able to transfer the patient right. if you are in the setting where you're going to transfer, right? That number matters, not just for resuscitation, but for what the burn center is going to accept and or are they just going to want them to come to clinic. So yeah, we tend to overestimate. Fine with that. Paper number nine. Cerebral venous thrombosis after vaccination against COVID-19 in the UK, a multi-center cohort study. A rare side effect of the adenovirus COVID vaccine is a newly recognized syndrome called vaccine-induced immune thrombotic thrombocytopenia, or VIT, similar to HIT. This paper looked at the most common manifestation of the syndrome, which is cerebral venous thrombosis, and compared the features and outcomes with and without VIT. They considered it VIT-associated if the platelet count was less than 150 and if the D-dimer was greater than 2,000. The authors found that patients with VIT-associated CVT were 10 years younger on average and had more intracranial and extracranial veins involved. The primary outcome of death or dependency on others for daily activity was about 30% higher with VIT at 47% versus 16%. Patients who had VIT did better with non-heparin anticoagulation as well as IVIG. So what do we do if a patient comes in with a headache post-vaccination? 
If they received the AstraZeneca or Johnson & Johnson vaccine, consider checking platelets in a D-dimer. And if abnormal, get some imaging. Paper number 10, myocarditis and pericarditis after vaccination from COVID-19. Sticking on that great uh, path of bad bad side effects. So cardiac side effects are a rare but known complication of the COVID vaccine. This is a large retrospective study from 40 hospitals that reviewed records of thousands of vaccinated patients to see how often myocarditis and pericarditis occurred. They found 1.8 per 100,000 patients got vaccine-related pericarditis, and 1 per 100,000 got vaccine-related myocarditis. They found, as a whole, that myocarditis developed quickly, about three and a half days after the vaccine, occurred in younger patients, and was usually seen after the second dose, whereas pericarditis affected older patients and later, more like 20 days from the vaccine, and occurred after both the first and the second dose. Lastly, when comparing pre-vaccine and post-vaccine time periods, there was a statistically significant increase in the incidence of both pericarditis and myocarditis. All told, these are rare side effects, and usually they're pretty treatable. So please don't let them discourage you, your loved ones, or your patients from getting the vaccine. And Jenny, one thing I want to add is that when we start talking about vaccine-related myocarditis, it's important to also talk about COVID-related myocarditis. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. So this paper mentions a rate of 0.001% that developed after being vaccinated. This is extraordinarily rare, extraordinarily small, like Jenny said. Recent data suggests that the risk of myocarditis among patients diagnosed with COVID is about 0.15%. That's way roughly, higher. Right. That's roughly 1,500 times higher with COVID. Yeah. So yeah. I think exactly. we, we need to make the point that getting vaccinated does not increase your risk of myocarditis, even when compared to the general population pre-COVID. Absolutely, Jess. That is the most important point. Get the vaccine. It's actually less risky than just getting COVID. Right. And, you know, Jenny, I agree. Like, my worry was also that this will be yet another excuse people will use to not get vaccinated. So I'm glad that at least we now have the data to educate them. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Paper number 11, Evaluation of Digital Otoscopy in Pediatric Patients, a Prospective Randomized Control Clinical Trial. When a little kid comes in, the attending plus minus the trainee will look in their ears. It's hard enough to get a good view once, but twice? The authors in this paper looked at a digital smartphone otoscope to see if it would improve inter-rater agreement and reduce the number of repeat ear exams since you could now take a picture of the TM for review. With the traditional otoscope, almost all the kids got repeat exams by the attending, compared to only about a quarter with the digital one, and agreement between the trainees and supervisors increased by about 10%. Unfortunately, The device in this study is no longer available on the market, but there are similar ones out there, and having something like this in my ED would be music to my ears. (laughs) Haha, I love what you did there. (laughs) Thanks. I have been super tempted by these. I'm not sure that my ED is going to start, you know, just stocking this in it, but you can buy them, I think just on Amazon, something like this to have for yourself personally, like your own stethoscope. I think they're pretty cool. Yeah, I, I might do that. 
Paper number 12, Experience of a Smartphone Ambulatory ECG Clinic for Emergency Department Patients with Palpitation, a single-center cohort study. The Alive Core Cardia device links to a smartphone to record cardiac rhythm and rate. When a patient is experiencing symptoms, they put their fingers on this little device, which then records a single lead ECG. In this study, patients who came to the ED with palpitations or presyncope that was thought to possibly be due to a dysrhythmia but had a normal ECG in the ED were then referred by the ED doc to this study clinic. From there, they got set up with one of these fancy devices. Over the one-year study period, they enrolled about 200 patients, and 7% of those patients had a cardiac diagnosis. So most of those were AFib or flutter or SVT. And 84% of the patients had a non-cardiac diagnosis. The authors state the intervention is cost-effective, but don't really elaborate on the amount of money saved. It seems pretty cool. And honestly, this is a device we might see our cardiologists starting to use. So I think it's good that we know about it and that it's out there. You know, this, I mean, this is just right at the beginning. I mean, we're going to get to a point where just all of our data is going to be recorded at all times and it's all going to be processed, you know? Yeah. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. Paper 13, use of adhesive tape to facilitate optimal mass positioning and use in the emergency department, a randomized control trial. Now, Jenny, I, I love this paper. I think it's so funny. So universal masking of patients and staff reduces the risk of hospital transmission of COVID. In this study, a piece of surgical tape was placed over the patient's mask on the bridge of the nose to see if this could help keep it where it needs to be. This intervention alone increased proper mask-wearing compliance from about 70% to 100%. Whoa. (laughs) Yeah, right? Number needed to treat, 3.2. Not too bad. This is a cheap and easy intervention that can be implemented now. I do have to say, Jenny, that after reading this study, every time I walk into a patient's room and their nose in it, I just want to like stick a piece of tape on them. And so it just like makes me giggle every time I walk in the room. I just imagine like putting tape on their face. I love this. And I think we should do it. And we can just say, you know, we don't have to make it seem like we're blaming them for being terrible at wearing a mask or whatever. Just it really helps to keep it in place. You don't have to worry about it or think about it. Let me help you out here. And then slap some tape across their nose. I love this. Right. I, you know, the funny thing is, I think this needs to be done in triage because I can just like well, imagine yeah. the review like, well, Dr. Monis came into my room and then put tape all over my face. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and then my press gainies are like, Phew. yeah, so, that's a good point. No, it needs to be protocolized. It's like you hand right. them the mask, you put the tape on. Yeah. OK, you're right. You're right. Paper 14, quick cuts, a comparative study of two tools for ring tourniquet removal. This is a pilot study comparing the efficacy, satisfaction of both the cutter and the cuttee, and complications of two ring removal tools, the motorized diamond disc ring cutter that a lot of us are familiar with, and a ring cutter attachment that is on specialized trauma shears, which, forgive me for using a brand here, are the raptor shears, which a lot of people have and love. So they found that the trauma shears tool removal removed rings more quickly and with better satisfaction for both the tool user and the person with the stuck ring. I don't love that motorized ring remover. It's kind of scary for the patients and it's rather cumbersome to use. 
I have owned these fancy trauma shears with the ring cutter thing for a very, very long time and for some reason never thought to try it. I know how I'm going to remove my neck stuck ring. All right, I'm getting one of those. I think it's probably like good to keep around the house too. Oh my God, I do keep one around the house. I have right. one in my like junk drawer in the kitchen. You never know when you might need a trauma shears. Exactly. Paper 15, a randomized controlled trial of oxycodone acetaminophen versus acetaminophen alone for emergency department patients with musculoskeletal pain refractory to ibuprofen. Prior studies have demonstrated that opioids do not work better than NSAIDs or acetaminophen as first-line treatment for acute musculoskeletal pain. So this paper asks, what about second line? All patients received 600 milligrams of ibuprofen, and an hour later, if they had insufficient pain relief, were randomized to receive either 10 milligrams of oxycodone plus 650 of acetaminophen or 650 of acetaminophen alone. Patients who received the combo had about a one-point greater drop in their pain score at two hours, but at a trade-off of 25% more adverse events. While the difference in pain scores is statistically significant, is it clinically significant? I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. I also, I always got to wonder, are you giving 650 of acetaminophen or do you never. give a gram? I mean, a I would gram. never Every take time. 650. You're right. So why am I, I'm not so interested in a study that's studying a dose of this medication that I would literally never give. Yeah, no idea. I have no idea. I give a gram every time. So yeah. Yeah, every single time. It's crazy. Paper 16, HIV post-exposure prophylaxis in the emergency department, an updated assessment and opportunities for HIV prevention identified. This study used an anonymous survey to assess the knowledge of HIV non-occupational post-exposure prophylaxis, so NPEP, confidence in prescribing this NPEP, and self-reported number of prescriptions in the last year among ED attendings, residents, and PAs. They found that almost 90% of providers believed it is their responsibility to provide HIV NPEP in the ED. But only a quarter of providers had actually done this in the last year. Only 40% of providers felt that they could appropriately prescribe the correct drugs. And in a quiz about HIV and NPEP, the average score was only 49%. So what is that, like a D? There is definitely some room for improvement here. Check out the core pendium on HIV post-exposure prophylaxis to brush up. All right, paper 17. Role of thoracic and abdominal tomography in identifying a potential source of infection in patients with acute fever of unknown focus. This was a retrospective chart review of patients with a documented fever that did not have a source identified after history, physical exam, UA, and a chest X-ray, and that underwent an abdominal and thoracic CT. They found that about one-third of patients had a source identified on imaging. They note that age greater than 65, comorbidities, and an elevated procalcitonin are risk factors for the presence of an infection on CT. Sanjay makes an excellent point that while one-third is a huge percentage, this is not the same thing as saying that you will find an infection on CT in one-third of all patients with a fever of unknown origin. Remember, this study was retrospective. The clinicians here chose to scan these patients for some reason. So I would use caution if trying to generalize these findings. That is such a good point. Thank you, Sanjay, for making it. And thank you, Jess, for reiterating it, because that's really true. 
Paper 18, what is the efficacy of initial therapies for bleeding from esophageal varices in adult patients with cirrhosis? So this is one of those commentary papers on a recent meta-analysis, and that meta-analysis was called Treatment of Bleeding Esophageal Varices in Patients with Decompensated Liver Cirrhosis, a Network Meta-Analysis. This meta-analysis that's then being commented on here included 52 trials with a total of 4,500-ish patients. All of the studies included were RCTs of adults with acute bleeding from esophageal varices due specifically to liver cirrhosis. Mortality was higher in patients who were treated with a somatostatin like octreotide or vasopressin alone compared to sclerotherapy alone. Sclerotherapy plus a somatostatin analog did not seem to reduce mortality but it did seem to reduce the rate of re-bleeding. This is interesting, but when I face one of these patients, I'm not doing anything in isolation. Yeah, I'm going to give the octreotide, but I'm certainly not only going to give the octreotide. I'm definitely calling GI for some kind of definitive treatment. So my patient, if they think is appropriate, is going to be going on to get the sclerotherapy or something else. Excellent. Paper 19. Racial and Ethnic Disparities in Physical Restraint Use for Pediatric Patients in the Emergency Department. We reviewed a paper back in November of 2020 that found that patients who identified as Black had about a 20% higher odds of being restrained compared to those that identified as white. You would hope that we would do better with kids. This research letter looked at a pediatric ED and found that sadly, we don't. Even after adjusting for sociodemographic and clinical characteristics, the odds of being physically restrained were over one and a half times greater in black children compared with white children. The authors say that this likely reflects racism at multiple levels within and beyond emergency care. That's a bold statement. It is of utmost importance that we are aware of our implicit bias when we practice medicine and keep it in check. We need to do better and we need to be better. Yeah, I mean, I don't really have much more to say than exactly that. We need to be better and do better. It's a really sad paper and we can do better. So let's do it. Paper number 20, Association of Limited English Proficiency and Increased Pediatric Emergency Department Revisits. This is a retrospective cross-sectional study looking at the association of limited English proficiency and pediatric ED revisits within 72 hours. They included over 60,000 patients, of which about 20% were identified as having limited English proficiency. They found the rate of ED revisits was higher for patients in the limited English proficiency group than those in the English proficient group. On their analysis, they found no statistically significant difference in the rates of hospitalization for these revisits between the two groups. So it's not like they were getting revisits because they were sicker and needed to be hospitalized. Communication is crucial for a safe discharge. As individuals and as systems, we need to make significant efforts to improve communication with our patients with limited English proficiency. We owe them that. So these last two papers, I think, are an EMA call to action to bring us into the new year to do better in these realms. And with that, 2020 is a wrap. Good. Oops. No. What year is it? My God, it's 2021. (laughs) I just time traveled. No, I I just have to say, Jenny, I think that is like amazing. 
Because like COVID has basically just put like a pause on life. Yeah. And it's honestly, like, it's really hard to year. know what year it is. <laughs> I love that. And with that, 2021 and 2020 and 2020, all of the times, all of the years are now behind us. Let's go forth into 2022, happier, healthier, and let's all be a little bit better. It's it's time to talk a little natty. Talk a little natty with Ken Milne. Hello and welcome to the December 2021 Time to Talk a Little Nerdy. This is Swami and here as always with me is Dr. Ken Mill. Well, hello again, my friend, and happy holidays. I think it's a little ironic that we're covering industry-funded medical education for the December issue because of the commercialization of holidays in December, but okay, it works. (laughs) This holiday brought to you by Mattel. Is that what you're telling me? That was my entire life in the 80s, Ken. The entire month of December was brought to you by Mattel. Ken and Barbie, Mattel, I get it. (laughs) This time you're going to get Ken and Swami. (laughs) Not quite as rewarding for the listeners, or or maybe it is, who knows? Who knows what people were into? But yeah, this is a little bit of a funny topic to get into, but one that I know you are are quite passionate about. And we're going to start with a little bit of background before we get into it. When we read articles, Ken, when, when we, you and me, and I think all of our listeners out there, one of the things that we look for and that you always make a point of, of pointing out is funding. In the case of a study looking at a specific drug, was the study sponsored by the pharmaceutical company that makes the drug? Was it sponsored by an institution or an unbiased third party? Or you know, was the funding simply you know, the researchers took it on themselves to obtain funding from their university? That's very different, right? Who funded the study? Why is that important to know though? Well, Swami, it's just another piece of information to consider when assessing the validity of the results, the conclusions, and the interpretation of the publication. And I want to emphasize that this is not an opinion. We have evidence that supports that position. Well, let's get into some of that evidence. Give me some examples. (laughs) Some examples. Good thing I have like a two terabyte hard drive, but (laughs) I have lots and lots of examples that in the published literature about how funding and sponsorship and financial conflicts of interest can bias results in interpretations. And when I'm using the term bias, I'm talking about something that systematically moves us away from the quote unquote truth. And that truth is the best point estimate of an observed effect size. I'll just give you a few. Okay. So Lund et al. in a Cochrane systematic review, and you know that Cochrane, right, is a well-respected publication, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So already you're going into it with a Bayesian approach of, hey, this is probably pretty credible. And Lund showed that with sponsorship trials of drug and device studies, if they were sponsored by a manufacturer, it did lead to more favorable efficacy results and conclusions when they compared it to studies that weren't supported by industry. And their analysis suggested that the bias can't be explained by the standard risk of bias assessment tool, because we do have tools that assess bias of studies, and the standard tools really can't get to that industry bias that is in studies. But it can also be financial ties to the principal investigator. So it doesn't have to be, oh, this study was funded. It can just be the principal investigator. And there's a cross-sectional study that looked at randomized control trials 
And in that study, they concluded that, quote, financial ties to the principal investigator were independently associated with positive clinical trial results. These findings may be suggestive of bias in the evidence base, end of quote. So that's suggesting that these financial ties to principal investigators can sort of bias, nudge, influence, you know, the whole database in general. Now, they were quantitative studies. There's even qualitative studies that were published, and one that was just recently published talked about conflicts of interest with the researchers, and they concluded that, quote, the results indicated considerable variability in researchers' understanding of what conflicts of interest are and when they should be reported, end of quote. And what that's getting at is, I think it parallels what we've seen with other physicians who you go, do you think that would be a conflict of interest? And the other physician would say, yeah, I don't even really know if that would constitute a conflict of interest. I don't even really know if I need to report it. And so I have a strong position that the probability of underreporting, if even the researchers don't know if, eh, is that a, just because they took me out to lunch, does that constitute a conflict of interest? News alert, yes, that is a conflict of interest. And they're not likely, or they may be unlikely, to recognize conflicts of interest and actually report them. So this does matter. And it does matter that it happens, it's out there. Does it really make a difference in how we interpret the study in terms of whether the study was sponsored by the maker of the drug or the individual clinician or the researcher was sponsored by that company? Does this compromise the data? Does it mean that if we see that, we should throw the data away? No, absolutely not. It's not dichotomous. It's not like sponsorship is bad, equals bad results, ignore those results. Absolutely not. And I try to repeatedly say this. You know, I just had a sort of mini five-minute rant there about those three studies, and we'll include links to those studies in the show notes so people can look at them for themselves. But it doesn't negate the actual publication. What it does is it should make us more skeptical. And of course, I've got a reference for that. There's a Cochrane review by Hansen et al. looking at financial conflicts of interest in what? Systematic reviews and meta-analyses. And when they looked at these systematic reviews and meta-analyses, they found that those with financial conflicts of interest more often have favorable conclusions and also tend to have lower methodologic quality than the systematic reviews that didn't have financial conflicts of interest. Now, they were cautious and conservative in their conclusions, and they said it was uncertain whether these financial conflicts of interest are associated with the results in the systematic reviews, but they do suggest and encourage that patients, clinicians, and that's who we're really talking to on this Time to Talk a Little Nerdy segment, we're talking to clinicians, but also those who are developing clinical practice guidelines and researchers who want to do another study, you know, if they're going to use a systematic review, they should use ones without financial conflicts of interest. And sometimes there's not. And so if they have financial conflicts of interest in the systematic review, they're going to base their clinical practice guidelines or future research on. They encourage that the users and the readers of those conclusions, and here's the key word, should do so with skepticism. Yes, we should be skeptical. And we should be critically appraising the methods because that's where the gold is, Swami. It's in the methods section. And then the interpretation of these results should be done with caution. Ken, to a certain degree, I think we do get this. 
the chances that a positive study that is sponsored by the pharmaceutical industry is going to get out there is higher than negative results. So even if the pharmaceutical company pays for a study, if it has negative results, we're just not going to see those. And I almost am surprised when I see a study that is supported by a pharmaceutical company that is a negative study for their drug. I'm surprised when those get published because they often don't. We clearly see a bias towards positive results in those kind of studies. I think as clinicians, while we may not always pay attention to this, we do understand it. We understand that there are inherent biases that can be built in when the pharmaceutical company is sponsoring a trial. But it's not just sponsoring the trial, but pharmaceutical corporations are setting the health and biomedical science research agenda. So they're, you know, follow the money. They have the funds so they can direct what questions are going to get asked and what's going to get researched and sometimes ultimately what's going to even get published. Right. So controlling all of those phases, we really shouldn't be putting all of that control into one particular group who clearly has a vested interest in what the outcomes of that research shows and what questions are being asked. And Ken, we are going to dive into something a little bit different. We, we alluded to this up front. We're not just going to talk about financial conflicts of interest with the studies. What we really want to get into is sponsorship of medical education and the financial conflicts that can come in there. We're going to really get into talking nerdy about industry-funded medical education. And let's define it a little bit and really state how common it is. So industry-funded medical education is when the pharmaceutical company or a medical device company provides financial support to deliver that continued medical education, or CME. And I know sometimes it's also called continued professional development. And it's common. Okay, this is a common occurrence. It's also pervasive, and it can be really large in dollar amounts, and it, and it can be really small in dollar amounts. And it can take on many forms. I think one of the things you said in there that's really important, Ken, is that it is both common and pervasive. Pervasive to the point of, we might not even think twice about it. It's normal. But let's elaborate on that last part that you talked about, that it can come in different forms. Well, it can be as small as giving a pen to a medical student early in their career with a drug name on it. Or as simple as providing the proverbial pizza for teaching rounds. But it can also be as large as financially supporting a physician to attend a conference in some exotic locale. Now, probably the most common example would be if you attend a sponsored CME talk. You know it's sponsored, and the talk is being given by a physician, and that physician is part of a pharmaceutical company's paid speaker bureau. Why do these companies fund CME? Because it's not cheap. Sure, the pen's cheap, the pizza's cheap, but flying a physician to an exotic location, paying for these speakers, that's not cheap at all. Short answer, it works. I mean, it increases market share and ultimately sales of their product. And pharmaceutical companies are aware that many physicians are required to collect a certain number of these CME credit hours to maintain their board certification and or their medical license. And CME is not considered advertising. And this can circumvent restrictions that countries have in place on product promotion. Ken, if I take one of these CME courses, one of these conferences that's funded by industry, I know it's funded by them. I see the name of the pharmaceutical company plastered over everything, the brochure. When you show up, it's in lights over the speaker. The speaker often will say it himself or herself that they are funded. 
it's quite clear from the advertising. The advertising is obviously important to them. So shouldn't I be prepared for the bias in the presented information? Well, of course you should be prepared, but physicians aren't good at detecting the bias. And of course, I'm going to support that with multiple studies. And I'll put a half a dozen links in the show notes of studies that have been published on this topic of CME sponsorship and bias. And these studies have reported that most physicians, maybe not you, you're very astute and you're tuned in, but most physicians don't detect that bias, even though it can be quite overt and explicit. And most physicians don't believe, even if they detect the bias, they don't believe that the sponsorship creates a general bias in the CME provided. And that also agrees with other surveys that have been done, whereas if you ask a physician, do you think your colleague is influenced by pharmaceutical sponsorship or pharmaceutical funding or pharmaceutical involvement? And they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah. But if you ask that same physician, do you think you're affected by, oh, no, 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 it doesn't affect me, but my colleagues, yeah, they're, they're influenced. Ken, you're making a callback to fundamental attribution bias. I know where you're going with this. We're going back to the biases podcast that we talked to before, but you're right. That is a really robust phenomenon. My colleagues affected, but I know better. And you even said, oh, well, Swami, you probably detect this stuff. You're savvy. But I don't think that I'm immune to this in any way, shape, or form. When it's really obvious and plastered, sure, I might, I might think about it. But some of this, like you said, is very pervasive and it can evade our usual detection skills. Now, on this topic, you sent me a short essay in the BMJ, one of both of our favorite publications to read, and it was entitled Industry-Funded Medical Education is Always, Always Promotion by Adrian Few Berman, and kudos to Professor Few Berman for her work and for perfectly writing a title right out of the Rick Bucata School of Title Writing. In her essay, Professor Few Berman goes through some of the reasons for her belief that it's all about the pharma promotion. The first one she hits on is that the drug makers are experts at creating a market by creating a disease. Yeah, absolutely. I want to echo your comments about the professor and her work in this area. And many of the references that will be included in the show notes come from this publication. So pharmaceutical companies create markets for their product. This is to increase the sales of their product. And this is because publicly traded companies traditionally have a primary Remember, that means the first, the one, right? Primary outcome. They have a primary duty to shareholders, not to patients. Now, I hope people are sitting down for this next part, though. Ready? Are you sitting down, Swami? Oh, I'm sitting down. I'm ready. Marketing works. <laughs> we are all impacted and susceptible to marketing. Going to medical school and completing a residency does not change basic human psychology. So, this is like a Newsflash, marketing works on doctors. And I think we know this again. If you were asking me, like, do you think your colleagues are affected by marketing? Absolutely. Are you affected by marketing? Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> so we have to be a little bit honest with ourselves. Ken, how does this influence the continuous medical education side? Yeah, that's what we're talking about there here, the CME. And CME funded events encourages clinicians to diagnose disease, treat mild conditions. It can reframe the normal aging process as a disease state, or it can encourage and promote the off-label use of a drug. All right, Ken, I'm going to ask you again for it. Let's get some examples. Okay, so the easiest way to get an example 
is to turn on satellite radio. Now, you may only want to listen for a short time and turn it off, but even listening to satellite radio for a short time, you're probably going to hear some kind of advertisement that goes mm, something like this. Are you suffering from low energy? Is your libido fading over time? You might be suffering from low testosterone. Ask your doctor if testosterone replacement therapy is right for you. You ever heard that or something like that, Swami? I have definitely heard it, not with your voice though, but yes, <laughs> I, think, I think we have all heard these before, whether it is satellite radio, whether it is watching videos online or watching TV commercials, we see it. Yeah, so they're trying to reframe the normal aging process into a disease state and suggesting that you should take a product daily that they provide to address this. But there's also the concept of pre-disease that has come up over the last decade. And the classic example of that is the pre-diabetes and treating people before they are diabetic, not with diet and exercise and lifestyle changes. Those all should be what we're doing, but also with pills. And, you know, whenever one of these studies comes out, I say, you know, I'm currently, while I'm recording with you, pre-tachycardic. <laughs> should I be placed on a beta blocker to prevent me from eventually becoming tachycardic? I mean, it gets a little crazy. And then the example of an off-label use would be the use of gabapentin. And this is an anti-epileptic drug that everybody is listening is probably familiar with. And it's approved for various painful conditions like post-herpetic neuralgia and diabetic neuropathy. But it's also being used for several other chronic pain conditions that it's not been demonstrated to be effective. At least we don't have high-quality evidence of that efficacy. And it's also being used off-label. It's not been approved by the FDA for those indications. And there are some documents that have been made through public legal cases and whistleblower complaints that support that pharmaceutical companies do support and promote off-label use in their CME. Professor Few Berman goes on to discuss how industry-funded education often hides the harms associated with a drug or treatment as well. Well, you know, this is not unique to industry-funded education, and anybody who has listened to us talk, we know that there is a bias to underreport harm and adverse events in randomized control trials and in systematic reviews. So it's not unique to industry-funded education. Now, the example the professor uses in her article that EM clinicians are probably aware of is that of opioids. And this has been termed the opioid epidemic, which is a complex society's problem. However, it is known that the potential benefits of using opioids for non-cancer pain was promoted really heavily. And while the potential harms of addiction and death were often omitted or minimized. Within all of this is the doctors or the faculty of the CME product who are delivering the information, the paid speakers or the speaker for that pharmaceutical company's bureau. From my experience, these speakers don't stand up on the stage and sell a drug, but Professor Few Berman does contend that the role of the speakers is critical. Oh, it is critical. And she refers to these physicians who are speakers as, quote, influencers. And this would be analogous to TikTok and Instagram influencers. Pharmaceutical companies get key opinion leaders in their areas, like Instagrammers with big followings, and get them to deliver the message, get them to deliver the CME. And these are usually academic physicians, highly respected, 
who speak with authority. But there's still lots of eminence-based medicine being practiced out there. But Ken, just to get back to what I led off with, these respected opinion leaders don't stand up at these CME events and they don't act as salespeople. They don't say, here's the drug, this is who I'm sponsored by, and you should be prescribing it. Yeah, sorry, I, I should have been clearer in my response. No, that's not what they're doing and it's not what they're paid to do, actually. They're influencers, right? These influencers are expected to discuss a certain topic area, disease, situation, various investigations and therapeutics, and they're knowledgeable about that area. But the sponsor is hoping that they will mention the sponsor's product as it relates to the topic itself. And this can present the information without setting off that woot, 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 skeptical radar. Then the pharmaceutical representatives and the more traditional advertising can come in and deliver that marketing message later. It's like a setup. They're setting you up and then the pharmaceutical reps are coming in for that, that blow, the killer blow. Yeah, well, they're softening you, you up. Yeah, yeah. They're yeah. softening you up for the message. And, and, you know, obviously the questions I'm asking are, are, are a little bit crazy. We know that they're not going to get up there and just hawk the product because we at least are savvy enough to be like, I have a problem with the guy who told me he's sponsored by the makers of AltaPlace getting up and saying, you should give AltaPlace, you should give AltaPlace over and over again. That's going to, like you said, set off those skeptical alarms. And so they're going to be more subtle about it. They're going to be more subtle about the way they are working into this. Let's switch our focus to funding. Sometimes the funding can be really overt, but it isn't always. Where does the money come from to support CME? Ah, follow the money. And I'd like to point out that in this episode, I did not bring up TPA and stroke. It was you this time. All right. <laughs> there are bodies in the United States and in Europe that provide CME accreditation because you have to get whatever information you're providing. Well, you don't have to, but it's one of those quality check boxes. Oh, well, this has been accredited. And we know that physicians have to collect so many of these credit hours. And so there are bodies set up within nations and areas to accredit various medical education programs. And they're financially supported by industry. Now, the American Accreditation Group claims that only 10% of their CME activities are industry-funded or supported, but it all comes down to that evidence-based medicine answer that I'm always giving. And I put you on the spot here, Swami. What's my answer to any EBM question? It all depends. Correct. So it all depends on what you consider supported. If you don't count non-monetary support like Providing the audiovisual equipment by a third party, paying for a third party to bring in all the AV equipment, paying for all the food, providing the meeting space and paying for the meeting space or supplies, things like that. It's stuff that's not directly paid, right? It's paid to the caterer, the hotel, some other third party. If you don't count that as commercial support, well, then if you're not counting it, of course you're not supported. Also, what's not considered industry sponsorship is if someone, a company buys a place in the exhibit hall or advertising in the exhibit hall, sets up a booth outside the room. That's not counted as financially supported CME activity. Yeah, and I'll pick a bone with that because I don't think I've been to a single conference ever that didn't have exhibitors of some kind, whether it is a manufacturing of a device, whether it is a pharmaceutical company. I haven't been to a single one that doesn't have that. And I think all of that does influence and it supports that CME event from the perspective of putting on conferences 
I haven't ever been able to put on a conference where you didn't need to get some money to support the conference that you're putting together. Now, there are different ways to do that without engaging with pharmaceutical companies and without engaging with manufacturers of devices, but it's hard to do. And all of that is supporting the event. So I couldn't agree with you more. It's not 10%. It's got to be closer to about 100%. Yeah. Well, I'm going to get you to pause there because I agree with you. It's probably close to 100%, but I would like to give a shout out to the Best Evidence in Emergency Medicine Conference or the BEAM Conference. They took no funding, no sponsorship, and there were no people outside with booths outside the conference hall. So you need to go to one of those beam conferences is what I'm suggesting. <laughs> You're telling me it can be done. And, and it I, can I, be done. Um, I have done it. I, I have done it, but it is hard. It is, it is much hard. more and, difficult. And the, the other thing that I was thinking about while you were talking was think about going to an amusement park. And I'll just pick a random one. Disney, right? After you've gone on the ride, what do you walk through after you get off the ride? Oh, it's the gift store right, right. away. And so after you have this influencer, this probably a, a, a phenomenal speaker, a very knowledgeable, authoritative individual from an academic tertiary care center, get up and give you this talk about an important thing that they're passionate about. And then you walk out of the meeting room and what do you do? You walk through the gift shop. Yeah, no, I think that's a really, really good point. Now, Ken, going back to the questions that I had prepared, because I want to make sure we get through all of these, we let off by saying that doctors aren't great at assessing the presence of bias. What can we do then? What can we do to be better at this? What can we do to look and see if there is bias in the medical education that we are getting? Well, there are various tools that have been developed to assess bias in CME activities. I think there's three main ones, but none of them are really granular enough to capture the subtle biases that can be introduced into these events. And I don't want to minimize how impactful subtle biases can be. These biases don't need to be like direct, overt, and in your face. And there's a book written by, and this is an appeal to authority probably, a Nobel Prize winner, Richard Thaler, and a Harvard Law School professor, Cass Sunstein, and the book is called Nudge. And it explains how people can be just, yeah, we'll just give them a little nudge in the right direction to make decisions about health, wealth, and happiness. And so when it comes to CME activities, you might not have a good enough tool to assess bias for some of these little nudges that take place. So really what we have to do is expect more, expect better from our CME provision, from the companies that really say this is good CME for us to use. But we can also raise our level of understanding of those biases that are there and really question them. I learned a lot of this from my chair when I was a resident, Dr. Goldfrank, because he really set the bar for, we're not allowing any of this to seep in. They're not going to sponsor our resident conference. They're not going to sponsor dinner. They're not going to sponsor lunches. We're not going to allow them in the building. And this was at a time when that was still happening in the US. And he really changed that dynamic and made us ask the question of why. Why aren't we letting this? This isn't even a drug that I prescribe. Why is it not okay for me to take a little bit of a dinner, take a steak, take a, a bottle of wine, whatever it is. And so he made us ask those questions. And I think it is important for us to engage a little bit more and ask the question of, is this influencing me? And understanding that it has to be influencing the vast majority of us or else they wouldn't be putting the money into it in the first place. And that might be the place that we start from. And then trying to figure out, well, how is it influencing me? And is there a better way for me to get my medical education? Again, you and I, we don't have these conflicts. 
MRAP doesn't have these conflicts. And so we try to provide the information as best we can. And I think it's important for us to continue to seek good, reliable resources that make it clear if they have financial conflicts or not. And the ones that don't have, if they're giving us good information, that's where we should be getting that information from. And I want to pull out one point and maybe expand on it just a bit before we finish up. When you mentioned that, you know, we do not take funding for the presentations and the information that we provide, this can come off as being, I don't know, representing yourself as better than someone else. And I don't want to come across that way. I will state for the record, I am not better than anybody else. I am just as susceptible (laughs) to bias and commercial bias. In fact, I might be even more susceptible. You buy me a t-shirt, you give me a nice pen. Oh my goodness, I am so happy, right? And so that's why I don't accept anything because I know the psychology. I know about the small gifts that, you know, giving of something and expecting something in return. And so I just try to prevent that and insulate myself by not really accepting anything from industry. But it's not because I'm better than anybody else. I think that's a really great point, Ken, recognizing that the bias is there and that maybe we don't have as much control over it. And so how can we avoid it? Well, we're just going to fully avoid it. We're going to completely take it away so that it is not something that can influence us. Ken, I think we got into really a lot of different information about the influence in medical education from pharmaceutical companies, from device manufacturers. Let's wrap this up a little bit because you have a couple of points that you want to hit before we close. Yeah. The last two things I just wanted to mention is there is an article that I think people should consider reading, and I'll put the link in the show notes. And it expands about the conversation or expands the conversation about financial conflicts of interest beyond that of just CME. And that's what we've been discussing here on this December issue of Time to Talk a Little Nerdy. And this paper is called Closed Financial Loops. When they happen in government, they're called corruption. In medicine, eh, they're just a footnote. And we would be wise to pay more attention to this potential bias in medicine. And the last thing, the final thing is, I'm going to include a bingo card in the show notes on conflicts of interest. And this is something that you could take to your next CME event and have a discussion with the speaker and sponsor, maybe not directly, but just, you know, start a conversation about, you know, sponsorship with the speaker, the uh, sponsor of the funded dinner. And see how long it takes you to yell, bingo, with your inside <laughs> voice. And you sent this to me beforehand, and I took a look at it. And um, yeah, I got, I got through that bingo pretty quick, thinking about the last conference I've been to that had a sponsor. And I think everybody who looks at this will get a little bit of a kick out of it, because you're going to recognize all of these expressions. None of this is going gonna, is gonna to be foreign to you. But I think it is important for us to see these kind of catchphrases that get mentioned over and over again. And these will be a little bit of a red flag when you hear them the next time. I think that's important. So yes, this is fun and it's going to get a couple of of chuckles, but there's also some real education in there as well to keep our skeptical radars up. And again, that is what we're always doing, Ken. We're always doing that with these time to talk a little nerdy segments is making sure that people really are thinking about these things carefully. And like you said, we're susceptible as well. And we are looking to make ourselves better as well as provide information that, that we have seen, things that we have seen, things that we have read to everybody else. So yes, this is a little bit off the beaten path of what we usually cover, but I think it is really a critically important topic for us to get into as providers of medical education and consumers of medical education to know what biases lie in there, where the financial conflicts are coming from, and then to aim to do better. And you mentioned 
the Beam conference. And I think that we should be trying to look and trying to find conferences that do a better job of not being sponsored, of not having that influence and that bias that's implicitly built into what's provided. I think if we know about this, if we think about it, then we can probably find better options. And we can also influence the providers of that medical education to do a better job and to not take that money and to find better ways to provide that medical education. Ken, as always, a great topic to get into. You sent me lots of stuff to read, which I always appreciate. And we will pass that along to the readers as well and the listeners as well who want to read up more on this. And of course, we are going to be back next month, the start of the year in January, a brand new, fresh year, 2022. And I can't wait to talk nerdy with you next year, Ken. Happy New Year's, everybody, and stay skeptical. Hey, Britt. Yo. We made it. Heck yeah. I feel like I, I, I see... <laughs> Like the the anxiety melting away. I don't know if you're like about to get up and dance or if you're just going to like collapse right in that chair right there. I feel like collapse is the direction I'm going in. If you collapse, I'm going to get one of those acute core cardio things and just slip it on your <laughs> phone and put your it. fingers on there and figure out what the heck is going on. You're so. going to see a very slow heart rate because now, oh boy, a weight has been lifted. And thank you so much for the opportunity, but- you know what? Thank it you. It was tough. <laughs> I know. I mean, this is, you know, Mike and I have sort of been at the helm almost three years now. We, I would love to have other voices on this EMA program. And I, I thank you for being the guinea pig, the very first one who volunteered, I'm using air quotes, to work with Volunteer. us. Volunteer. Uh, on this. You know, it was nice because we actually, uh, Mel hosted a very, a very fun MRAP kind of family retreat. Yes. Uh, just within the last week or so. So Britt and I got to hang out a little bit on more of a social level and, you know, have a few drinks and get to know each other, which I think took a lot of the anxiety off this recording. It made it feel like two more like two, two friends, two friends chatting in a room, <laughs> two friends chatting in a room, which is, you know, how I want it to feel. So I think it was great. I think we did some awesome papers today. I think you kind of stumbled into like a killer month for papers, actually. It was amazing. I learned a ton. This has been a really cool opportunity. And, uh, you know, how Mike and I usually close this is we, we tell the listenership. I don't know if you ever made it all the way to the outro. I don't know who does, actually. <laughs> but uh, we usually tell the EMA audience out there to stay classy. So if you want to <sighs> handle the, the, and since it's your first recording. Oh, my gosh. You can just go ahead and say advise everyone. To, all right. MRAP world, you stay classy.